How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't see that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one. Preparation for this, not that it had anything to do with anything. While I was getting ready, just getting into Batman mode that I've been in for like three weeks, I watched this whole documentary on the Batmobile. Right? That's getting into some nerddom when you just watch something about the damn car. Tide, <laughs> trivia question. Do you know what the first Batmobile looked like? Uh, it was a red Lincoln. That was close enough. I mean, it's a red sedan is yeah. what it was. I just, I just did not know that before yeah. this documentary. And I just thought that was the strangest thing. Like they Batman had it, driving around in a red sedan. Yeah. Well, the funny thing that they were talking about was that it was just kind of like, hey, here's, you know, Batman's car just has the top up. <laughs> you put the top down. It's like, oh, it's yeah. Bruce they did Wayne's that on the serials oh, too in car. the 30s. They said that yeah. they would like, like, it was a Cadillac there. It was like a 39 Cadillac or something. It was like yeah. top up, it's the Batmobile. Top down, it's Bruce Wayne's car. <laughs> like nobody ever picked up on it. I guess they just didn't yeah. think about it. It was <laughs> Bill Finger who actually started the idea of updating the whole thing. Uh, but I think it did like, it was, it was kind of cool. It was like during the 50s, there was an editorial decision made. They said that they needed to do something different. And Batman broke his leg in a car wreck. Yeah. So while he's laid up, he actually designs this stuff, which is very like the Nolan movies, I thought. I thought that was mm-hmm. kind of neat. It was uh, a necessity. Yeah, this documentary I watched, it went through like every single movie's yeah. Batmobile. Or like yeah. all of Batman. I mean, even the animated series, everything. They talked to all the people. So like all the directors are in it, talking about their designs, even up to like... Batman three where HR Geiger designed one and yep. it just, that one looks wild. Yeah. yeah it, it wasn't feasible to use. They wanted to also, they referred to him as HR Geiger, which turned my world <laughs> upside down. Cause I don't think I've ever heard it said that way. I've heard it said both ways. Yeah. I think I've heard both. I'm not sure the exact pronunciation. Well, so, so the version that they have in the books initially, like that for like after the Cadillac and they actually designed like the first Batmobile they and then the first, quote unquote real Batmobile, you know, of course, was the Bill Dozer series from the 60s designed by George Barris. There's actually a version in between that, the I so I guess it's the 1940s, but there and it's not official, but Alex Ross has it in his in his oh, wow. garage. He's got huh. like a full on 1940s Batmobile. Dang. It's badass looking too. That's awesome. <laughs> like uh the, the big thing I learned about Nolan's Batmobile is just how fast it could really go. Like they never yeah. uh really got a chance to do it. Like they had a supercharged Mercedes ML55 that was using that arm that I keep bringing up, but it couldn't keep up with the Batmobile most of the yeah. time. Like if it got on too much of a stretch of road. Uh but they showed this also this thing that happened at Bob's drive-in um where all of the batmobiles were all in one place and i thought that was pretty wicked yeah and then awesome. uh speaking of what you just were that 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 ventriloquist comedian he bought jeff dunham jeff yeah. dunham he bought the og uh burton yeah. batmobile right jeff dunham right. makes enough money to have bought the tim burton 
Batman. That makes me so sad. <laughs> <laughs> he sure did. He bought it. And, oh, uh, that guy's showed him driving terrible. around, cruising down the street in it, filling oh. it up with gas. And I hate him even more. <laughs> I'm looking at pictures of the HR Giger one. It looks like four novelty dildos welded together. <laughs> that, wrong. Yeah, it really does. I don't know how it would ever function as an actual vehicle. No. But. And also that documentary, one thing I thought was cool is that uh, delves into the idea of comics uh, and modern mythology matching yeah. up, dating back to like cave drawings. They talk about all the rides that like legendary figures have, like Odin had an eight-legged horse. Yeah. And uh, that's just the one I remember. But I always dig those kind of things because it helps with my arguing for when people tell me that comics are stupid, it's a better thing to have in your back pocket instead of like, no, you're stupid. No, you're yeah. stupid. No, you. <laughs> oh, all right. Anyway, what's up? Hello. Well, hello. That's the one. Uh, welcome to Cinema Shock. It's a podcast dedicated to the history and evolution of cult and genre movies. I'm Gary Horde. I'm Justin Bishop. We're joined today by writer, comedian, and apparently mask enthusiast which i didn't realize until he popped onto the zoom chat wearing his own version of a bane mask which is just his cpap mask it's just um, a cpap mask and chin strap that's because all we're all old geezers <laughs> mr todd a davis hey everybody thanks for having thanks for, me back thanks for being our special guest this week. oh god you almost went the whole time without saying it i don't know why it offends me so much <laughs> You, you did it, and then it bummed me out. You both took a drink at the same time, so I Sorry. felt immediately obligated to fill dead air with saying stuff like this. This is how a podcast works. You could have just edited out the dead air. That's also how a podcast works. No, that is more work for me than talking. Talking's not work. Talking's. <laughs> I, 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 saw, I saw. I watched the whole thing about Hod Zimmer, and he talked about like all the spending a year on this uh, soundtrack, and he, they said, "You know, you worked a long time." And he's like, this is not work. Yes, you get tired, but it's it's music. You're making music. This is what I do. And and the operative word here is like when you're making music, you're playing music. So I spent a year playing, and that's uh it's a good way to walking is like playing for me. So I just will keep <laughs> rambling, clearly. And so yeah. that's easier than editing. Easier for you, not necessarily for the audience <laughs> who right. has to listen to it. Right. <laughs> Welcome to week three. The final week, the wrap-up to our look at Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. Uh, this has been fun. When was the last time you guys watched these movies? I know uh, Gary said it had been a long time. They're in pretty steady rotation for me. And yeah, I, I think I I think I enjoy... You rewatch them once a year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy, at least once easy a year? once a year. Yeah, probably, yeah. probably more often than that. All right, all right. So yeah. I have not seen this movie since the theaters. This one. Okay, I, I definitely not. Uh, definitely have not. And uh, I saw, I've seen the other ones since, but it's been a while for both of them. But this one, I definitely only saw it in the theater. Okay, all right. Let so the games, let the games begin. Oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we discussed last week, The Dark Knight, the second film in the trilogy, was a major success. The I don't think it was quite the highest grossing Batman film, uh, but... It was way up there. It was one of the highest grossing films of 2008. So, of course, after that major success, not just commercial, but critical as well, won all kinds of awards, Warner Brothers signed uh, Nolan on. They, they actually signed him on to direct Inception because they, they were like, what do you want to do, Chris? 
And this is what he wanted to do. He wasn't actually sure if he wanted to come back for another Batman movie at that time. So he signed on to direct Inception in 2010. And of course, it was yet again another major success, both critically and commercially. This is a trend that we're seeing with Christopher Nolan's movies uh, up until this year, I guess. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. And, hardly, and hardly any of that's his fault. Well, it's arguably partially his fault for insisting that Tenet come out in theaters this year. So, uh, Okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, Had he waited ne- till next year, maybe it would have made a lot more money. Yeah, good point, good point. But he did follow up Inception two years later with the third and final film of his Batman trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises. There's a storm coming. You sound like you're looking forward to it. I'm adaptable. What are you? I'm Gotham's reckoning. Did they kill him? I'm not sure. Why didn't you just kill me? Your punishment must be more severe. Do you think he's coming back? I don't know. Why would you run, Bane? You should be as afraid of him as I am. I won't bury you. I've buried enough members of the Wayne family. You don't owe these people anymore. You've given them everything. Not everything. Not yet. My mother warned me about getting into cars with strange men. This isn't a car. So as I mentioned, Nolan, he was initially hesitant about returning for a third film, but he agreed after he kind of worked out a story with his brother, Jonah, and David S. Goyer. They developed a story that Jonah. he thought... That's what he goes by. That's what he prefers to go Really? By. Yep. Well, why? That doesn't even make sense. Why? <laughs> Jonathan. Jonah. J O. Take the take the fan off of it. Do people name Jonathan go by Jonah often? I've never known. Is that a normal thing for Jonathan's? I don't know, Gary, but this is what Mr. Nolan prefers to go by. If you see any interviews with anyone speaking about him, they refer to him as Jonah. He only goes by Jonathan on like screen credits. All right. Well, you know what? I'm not going to sit here and pretend like the Nolan brothers are the most normal people in the world. Probably, <laughs> so they have two very different accents. I was I was going to ask you about that on this episode. Why in everything that I watch, why is why does Jonathan Nolan not have an English accent? <laughs> well, he grew up in America, and Christopher didn't. He grew. Up, we discussed this. He grew up partially in America and partially in England. Well. He has dual citizenship. What's the what's age difference on them? Jonathan's much younger. I wouldn't say much younger, but a few years younger. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I did not research, Gary, to answer your question, the amount of time that each spent in each place. But I would wager to guess that Christopher spent more time in England than his brother did. Mm. Thus picking up that accent. So I wonder if he ever made fun of him for it. <laughs> Which one? Either. <laughs> Chris Nolan is six years older. Okay, so that's not a huge difference. Yeah. Anyway, they they worked out a story that Christopher Nolan 
thought would bring the story to a satisfactory conclusion because that was always his intent and always kind of David S. Goyer's intent. David S. Goyer, you know, we discussed initially planned this as a trilogy. He, he, and he maintains that although the, of course, the arc that he had originally planned for it was not what, what ended up happening. Cause as we discussed his original treatment had Two-Face as the bad guy in the third film, where that storyline kind of got condensed into the Dark Knight. But he always said, if you read interviews with David S. Goyer talking about The Dark Knight Rises, he says that he always knew what the final shot of the trilogy would be. Uh, He always had that in his mind. And he says that the final shot in The Dark Knight Rises is what he originally intended. So there are, of course, parts of his original treatment that made it into this final film, even though they kind of had to completely redo the, the main story, including the main villain. Well, I'm sure, you know, Heath passing away probably definitely threw, I mean, a, monk, threw a wrench in the works as well, which is the yeah. ultimate joke when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you're right, Todd. I mean, it did require them to go in a different direction because at the end of the Dark Knight, the the Joker gets apprehended by Batman, but he's very much still alive. Uh, and it's it's hard to say if Nolan would have included Ledger in the sequel. For one, he wasn't that keen on doing a third film anyway, but he also doesn't like to repeat himself. Although members of Ledger's family have said that Heath Ledger was very happy. He loved the work that he did on the dark night and spoke about the possibility of coming back for a third film. So it's hard to say, we don't know. We'll never know what may have happened or what that, that third film may have looked like had Heath Ledger not passed away. But Christopher Nolan, he has said, this is actually, I'll, I'll read a specific quote from him. He says that on a more superficial level, I have to ask how many good third movies in a franchise can people name? So he was hesitant to come back for a third film because by his own admission, a lot of times a third film in a trilogy fails to live up to the previous films. Right. A lot of times the second film does, but especially the third film in a trilogy, even in a great tr- trilogy like, let's say, Star Wars mm. uh, or or Back to the Future, the third film is generally considered the lesser of the three, even yeah. if it's still not bad. Yeah, <laughs> you know what true. I mean? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. What, what happens more often nowadays, you up your chances if you bring back the exact creative team that's been working on this complete story the whole time, which they sure. did do. And I do believe like Bruce's story does feel like a definitive three-part structure. It I, does. And I think, and that was intentional by them, even if they didn't have the whole thing mapped out from the beginning, you know, like they didn't have the third film. They didn't start writing this third film until after they'd finished The Dark Knight. So it wasn't like they had mapped out like a first, second, and third act, but they did make it feel like that was planned. (laughs) I read some of the stuff that one of the big things for Goyer was that he kind of considered a challenge through this whole thing when when he originally even first thought about, like, if I were making a Batman story, uh, was that he wanted... Uh, a big role of it, and this goes back to Nolan casting Bale as Batman, something he he was talking about back on Batman Begins, is that he wanted to see if they could just get people to care about Bruce Wayne, the character, and not just when he's in costume. Yeah. Um, and I, I really think they succeeded in that by the time this one rolls around because... Oh, I, I think they succeed with that from the first film, honestly, because this is... Uh, I've said this on the previous two episodes, but this this... Trilogy is Bruce Wayne's story more than it's the Batman story. Yeah, the Batman, I guess what I'm even th- in, 
I mean, in, in the narrative of the film, but even in the hands of the way of, of Christopher Nolan and the way that he uses Batman, Batman is more of a symbol than a character, even for Christopher Nolan. Uh, Bruce Wayne is a character. By, by the time this movie rolls around, he's, he's become this thing that Alfred's been talking about since day one and warning against. Now he's in this situation where he's frozen in time, his adventures, his, all his batman and they've uh, damaged him seemingly like physically uh, yeah, beyond really- repair and not just physically, emotionally too. It's like he's addicted to this thing and he's full of anger and everything else. And if Gotham's fixed, he's got nothing to push back against. So he's got no purpose. And uh, it's just, it's something they've built up to talking about through the, all the movies. And now he's just this older, disheveled, homeless looking dude standing in the window of his mansion, just like Homelander in the boys or Louis CK, just like jerking off while he looks out on the city. And he just sounds really <laughs> angry. And there's like all these stories in Gotham about the orgasms he has as, in the Batman voice, like, Gary, I'm Batman. Gary, I think ah, you've gone projecting. off the rails a little bit here, you're Gary. Projecting onto <laughs> this is called fan. I want you to tell all your friends about me. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting though because one thing I don't think we mentioned this, but one of the films that that Nolan was working on, I think prior to Batman Begins, I believe one of the films he was working on. It may have been between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. I can't remember, but. Uh, that f- kind of fell through was a Howard Hughes biopic. Mm. He was working, he worked for several years on, on doing a Howard Hughes biopic. He ended up not doing it because he found out that Martin Scorsese was doing the aviator and you don't want to try to make the same kind of movie that Martin Scorsese is making because you're going to lose that battle. So he just shelved that project. So it's kind of interesting that he sort of puts Bruce Wayne in Howard Hughes mode by making him a, a rich hermit who never leaves, you know, never leaves his house, lives in his bathrobe all the time. Well, they kind of address, I mean, they address that directly in dialogue and uh, to what Gary was saying earlier, that was because Kat and I were talking about it last night and she said, you know, he doesn't leave the house. That doesn't seem very Bruce Wayne like. And I said, well, you have to remember that he on the plane back from um back from iceland you know in the very first movie he talks about you know as a man he can be destroyed but as a symbol he can be incorruptible everlasting and then you know joker sort of acknowledges like you really are incorruptible aren't you it's only once they get to the end of dark knight that he finally pulls the trigger on truly shedding what was holding him back from becoming that symbol completely. And what was holding him back from becoming that symbol completely was the last few remaining shreds of Bruce Wayne. So once that is shed, he is fully Batman. And even Rachel at the beginning of the first one said, the man I loved never came back. Most of Bruce Wayne is still in the mountains somewhere over, (laughs) over in Iceland. But uh, uh, you know, with this one, we see, yeah, he's been hanging out at the house, just doing his thing. It's he's because he's practicing he's, his archery, practicing his archery. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, he's he's not. He, he at that point, he's not Bruce Wayne anymore. He's Batman, and you know, to keep up the safety of the of the of the city with all the criminals in Gotham. Yes, it's based on a lie, but the only way he can do that is keeping his ass at maintain home. the lie. Yeah, stay at yeah. home, which is. What we've been doing through this whole pandemic. Keep your ass at home, people. <laughs> so once he did sign on, once he was 
you know, convinced that he had a story that he could he could work with. Warner Brothers, he kind of clashed with the studio over who to include as a villain. Because obviously Heath Ledger's work as the Joker is iconic. I mean, unmatchable. They, of course, wanted a villain that was similar to the Joker because that had worked so well because that's what studios in Hollywood do. You know, that's like, oh, you did this one time, let's do it again. But Christopher Nolan, not wanting to repeat himself, didn't like that. The studio wanted the Riddler to be the villain in this, and they wanted Leonardo DiCaprio to play it. But he thought that, that, that the Riddler, and I agree, that the Riddler is just too similar to the Joker and you, you can't, you got to go in a completely different direction, which is what he did with the character of Bane. He was like, I already put Mr. Reese in the second one. You dipshits. Aren't you even watching my movies? And the Jonathan's <laughs> in the background. Chris, shut up with the accent. <laughs> <laughs> That's his real accent, Gary. It's not a fake accent. That's probably, that's probably how it goes. Uh, Nolan goes was, in the Nolan household, baby. <laughs> Nolan was actually unfamiliar with the character of Bane because, you know, Nolan was a, a Batman fan, but he wasn't like a Batman super fan. And Bane's stuff came, I, I would say you could consider that later in Batman's run because that was in the 90s, right? Early 90s, early to mid 90s. Uh, yeah, early to mid 90s. Yeah, 93 to 95, I think. Yeah, so, but he did, you know, a lot of research and he noted that, because the character was so vastly different from the Joker that he would be an entirely new kind of threat for Batman in, in multiple ways. I mean, he was, well, of course, the version that they ended up creating of Bane was very much a uh, very disciplined, but he was also a physical threat to Batman, which the Joker was not. The Joker, if the Batman and the Joker had just got, if it was just a fist fight, Batman wins easily, but that's not the kind of villain that the Joker is. That is very much the kind of villain that Bane is, especially in the comic book where he is almost entirely nothing but brute strength, uh, barely yeah. even speaking, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, I, I, I appreciated Cause I mean, when I got into like really started getting heavily into comics was right around the time that they had introduced Bane. So this was, this was very, this was a very important storyline for me. Um, and I just remember him being, and yeah, he kind of looked like a luchador and, you know, yeah. yeah, he had the tubes running the whole thing, but like he was pretty damn menacing. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the nightfall storyline is yeah really good. Yeah. Well, he, he like, I mean, he plots out the destroy. He figures out on his own who Batman is right. in the comics and then <laughs> tracks him down. Then, meticulously picks him apart like yep. getting yeah, him into the, all he, these different situations so that by the time he fights him he's already beaten down and tired and yeah he knows and, he and that's why him. that's why the depiction of bane in in batman and robin is so irritating because he yes. is literally just a beast yeah. like a mindless beast being controlled by poison ivy whereas in the comics and in this film he is very smart you know, and that, that makes him an even bigger threat. See, I, I saw some stuff with Jonathan Nolan, you know, that he had been familiar with the character uh, that, you know, Nolan and Goyer brought it to him. Goyer uh, wanted him most, and Chris was very anti-Bane at first. Uh, but Goyer had to sit him down and say, hold on, hold on. We're going to do the Christopher Nolan version of Bane. Jonathan pointed out, said he pointed out to Chris, he's like, okay, Hey, all I do remember about this guy from the comics is that he's the first person that really physically damaged Batman and has this residual imprint on his psyche. This could be really good. Yeah. And uh, they said that 
Chris started to like buy into it, you know, Goyer had to talk to him about like, look, we can make this totally your jam. Like this, he's creepy, physical, distorted. Uh, we'll focus on the cerebral side of this thing. So that's why they should have hired the cerebral assassin, the game Triple H, <laughs> but they didn't. But anyway. <laughs> oh man can you imagine it would have been really awesome he's got the physique he's, he does have the physique, he's got the that, physique that is, that is what he got has a, and he's got a face for and deception are powerful weapons to the he's got a face for a character who wears a mask the entire time <laughs> oh, man. so after he'd cracked the story of the film uh, David David S. Goyer and Jonathan Nolan began working on the screenplay, although Goyer actually had to leave during pre-production to begin work on Man of Steel, which, if you'll remember, Man of Steel was actually being produced by Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan actually, I think, has a story credit on it, if I'm not mistaken, but David S. Goyer actually wrote the screenplay for that. So Jonathan continued to write the script based on the story that they'd all come up with. Of course, we already mentioned it, but one of the major influences, one of the major inspirations for the story for the writers was the 1993 Batman story Nightfall, uh, which is where Bane breaks Batman's back. Uh, it's a it's, it's a great story. It's one of the first Batman stories I really got into, like a long form story that I really got into. I remember buying the trade paperback in when I was in, I guess, middle school at that point. And uh, but of course it goes on longer and there's it introduces Azrael and all this other stuff that of course this movie doesn't having any doesn't touch on at all, but the character of Bane and him breaking Batman's back comes directly from that story. Right. Of course, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns was also a major inspiration, uh, as well as the 1999 story No Man's Land, which you see a major influence on in this with Bane's kind of occupation of Gotham, which is another really great Batman story if you haven't yeah. read it. Yeah, it's it's really fantastic because it um, it just shows the you know the breakdown of the society of Gotham into yeah. this uh, very tribal you know uh, the yeah. city ends up being divided. It's it's great. It's a great story. Yeah, uh, Nolan has also said that Charles Dickens as a tale of two cities set during the French Revolution was one of his major influences, and that's very apparent when you watch the movie with that mindset because a tale of two cities is all about class warfare essentially mm. uh the di- the the differences between the haves and the have nots uh it's about duality the the main characters are basically doubles uh which is something that is a recurring motif throughout this whole series especially with the duality of course of batman and bruce wayne i, I saw some straight up stuff with christopher nolan talking about that exact thing that just yeah. with it was important to him for like this Bane, uh, even wardrobe wise, we'll get into in a little bit, but uh, that, that he's a mercenary. He's very smart. He's somebody who would storm a city. He's, yeah. he's at, that his costumes an amalgam of all these things. And, and, but he wants it to be more like a look like a second world war guy or a Roman gladiator or something. He wanted but, this to feel like a historical epic. Yeah, that there yeah. was a sense too of a romanticism about him. Yeah. He 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 describes specifically what you said in, in one interview, just that he's a tale of two cities villain. He's like he's like a revolutionary gone wrong, is I think the term he used. Well, um, Nolan actually, I mean, the the movie specifically like overtly references tale of two cities because when Gordon is giving his eulogy at the end. He's literally reading from a tale of two cities. He's reading like one of the last passages from the book. Right? Yeah. So it's it's very clear that that's what he's doing. 
Also, the script was like I heard on the first draft, like 400 pages. So they were they were shooting for the actual novel length, too. <laughs> uh, and The Dark Knight Rises would reunite Nolan with a lot of his previous collaborators, including cinematographer Wally Pfister. I think this is their seventh movie together. Uh, production designer Nathan Crowley, the guy, you know, the guy who designed the Batpod and the Batmobile or the, the Tumblr. Uh, editor Lee Smith and, of course, composer Hans Zimmer once again. Uh, although, you know, on this one, Hans Zimmer did it by himself. Hans Zimmer, uh, yeah, yeah I noticed uh, James, that. James Newton Howard didn't come around this time because he actually opted not to return. He was invited, but Hans Zimmer, and the way that he says it is because Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan had really established a chemistry together, working on Inception in between the two films, that he felt like he would feel like a third wheel if he came back for this movie, you know? Yeah, Um you know, on a side note really quick, too, I, I meant to mention it at the top of the show, but I saw a really cute side story about the Nolan brothers that uh, Chris gave Jonathan the Dark Knight Returns and year one for his 13th birthday. Oh. And uh, 13 years later. Those are good gifts. <laughs> yeah. 13 years later is when Batman Begins premiered. So nice. just a side side note. I don't know. It has nothing to do with anything you just said, except that you could probably imagine it's like, here, take these books. They're very good. And then Jonathan like, would you shut the fuck up, Chris, with that accent? Always. I don't know why Quick. you're projecting some sort of anger between these two brothers who seem to genuinely care for each other. Yeah, and... well, that's how everybody seems on the outside, <laughs> I'm exposing the dark underbelly of the Nolan universe. Oh. So, in addition to returning crew members... <laughs> you think uh, darkness is your ally? Oh, my God. <laughs> so in addition to the returning crew members several key cast members including christian bell michael kane gary oldman and morgan freeman all return but this movie introduces a lot of new characters uh, most notably of course you've got anne hathaway as selena kyle so and i guess it sh we should note that she is always referred to as selena kyle in this movie and never once is the word catwoman uttered in this which i you know would be kind of silly in the context of Christopher Nolan's world, I think. But Anne Hathaway, you know, she she auditioned for this role, not even knowing which role she was auditioning for. She knew she was auditioning for the new Batman movie for, uh, directed by Christopher Nolan. But she only found out afterwards when she was offered the role that it was Selena Kyle that she was she was being offered. Uh, I saw and, some and, stuff that said she was like thinking maybe Harley Quinn or something uh, yeah. like that is what she was thinking was happening. Um, but, I can't imagine a Nolan version of Harley Quinn. Yeah, it doesn't really yeah. seem to fit. His Joker doesn't seem to have any interest in in that sort of thing. Yeah, she knocks it out of the park though. She's great. Anne Hathaway. Yeah, yeah, she's incredible, man. Like I, I really like her as an actress, and um, I, I've recently watched a couple things with her in it because I mean, not just this, but I, I rewatched um, Interstellar recently, mm. and I watched Les Mis the other night because I just wanted to be fucking sad, I guess. Um, <laughs> and she is. A great actress. I think yeah. she doesn't get enough credit. And she's very good in this because she can go between the way that she can change like her personality up when when Selena is pretending to be someone else. Well, like when she, like when she's a waitress. She literally know? does yeah. it like uh, on you know, toys on it turns on a dime, like yeah. in several yeah, scenes. She, yeah, like when when she first meets Bruce, when she kind of turns it off, and same again when she's in that meeting when the uh she uses the what's his face's cell phone, you know, and then she starts screaming like, and then just turns it off. It's really great. It's a really yeah. fun, but she's also, I think pretty physically convincing, you know, she, oh, yeah. 
she trained extensively in martial arts for this. I, I was reading an interview with her today and that the moment where she meets Bruce and she jumps, does that backflip out of the window. I assume that was some sort of effect because it's so fluid. She really did that. She did the backflip out of that window on her own. Wasn't okay. a stunt person. Wasn't a digital, like where they, where they put the digital stunt, the face over the stunt person right. or anything like that. It was her doing a backflip out of a window. I gained a That's lot awesome. of respect to, for her after like reading interviews and seeing things with this um, because, well, to go back to Catwoman real quick. I mean, one of the, the big things about this character being in here is I, I did, I did see that this was more of a Jonathan Nolan contribution. Chris again was not uh, sure about yeah. Catwoman being in the movie. Uh, but Jonathan was very adamant that she has to be part of the story, especially if this is going to be their trilogy. He doesn't think that there's a complete Batman story without Catwoman. Uh, so it wouldn't do it justice. Right. Uh, because she, they were trying to encompass as much of the whole of the Batman mythos as they could within three movies. And right. Uh, and she and obviously also, you can't like, include every character, but you have to include Catwoman. You know, well, he, he thought that she offered like a, a, shade of gray that like Batman wouldn't be completely familiar with having dealt with so many villains. And for Bruce also, he doesn't have anybody like her except maybe Alfred that who does not himself. look nearly as good in the, in the, in the outfit. Well, you, you <laughs> haven't seen him in the outfit to be fair. <laughs> to, to be fair. <laughs> um, but she's not abused by Bruce. She's not intimidated by Batman. She, yeah. he, but he can be himself. She runs around in a mask. She gets it too. Uh, but of course, Nolan has to make it his own. He grounds the character a lot. Uh, his Catwoman definitely has like that femme fatale look. Very much, yeah. She's a grifter. Well, uh, the two the two things that I saw that really impressed me were because um, I mean, obviously, obviously, she did her homework and training in terms of the martial arts and the stunt work and everything. But I was really impressed with uh, her manipulation of the handgun in that barroom scene. Yeah, um, and then f to listen to her talk about going back to the first appearance of Catwoman and seeing what Bob Kane and Bill Finger uh, based the character on and then her taking acting cues from those particular actresses from the 30s and 40s. Well, and it was specifically Hedy Lamar. Yes. Hedy yeah. um, Lamar is who, who they modeled Catwoman after. Right. Uh, when they had originally created the character, but, and that, so she, she based her, her entire performance on Hedy Lamar, like especially yeah. the voice. That's, yeah. that's one of the things I, I was talking about when I was gaining respect for her because yeah, she, it's like, she knows what she's, she's just very intelligent. Like she, she said she literally didn't study any other screen version of Catwoman because she knew that her Catwoman had to be Christopher Nolan's Catwoman. Right. You can't and, base this. You can't compare it to, Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, who I love her version of Catwoman, but she is, you know, she's a sexed up, like, you know, it, it's a very different version that fits in Burton's world. It would not fit in this one. But it's right. a cool, pleasing moment for a comic book fan to see, like, that she's also like, I dove in and I know that Bob Kane was a huge Hedy Lamar fan. And this was who he was thinking of when he made Catwoman. And so instead, I dove into the filmography of Hedy Lamar. And picked yeah. up style and techniques, mannerisms. That she kind also of thing. watched a lot of cat videos on YouTube. She said, "Oh, so the, well, the piano certain, playing certain parts of those videos I'd like to see." You know what I'm saying? Hey, oh. uh, she does. She does Just the licking yourself parts. Whatever. Oh, ew. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, I got two cats. That's what they do, and it's not. That's uh, mostly what. That's mostly what cats do. Honestly, I don't want to be inappropriate, to but it's not as cool to see as it would be Anne Hathaway doing it. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I get it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think she's really outstanding in the role. I think she's got the physicality for it. She she wears the costume well. Uh, the the I like the costume design. I like the uh, the. I thought it was silly at first, but I kind of like the way that her goggles look a little bit like cat ears when she puts them up, you know, yeah. it's kind of fun. It's a subtle little nod to the the character's original costume. Well, I mean, it's but it works. To, yeah. It was a way to ground it. Like you, I don't, you know, it's just a unique way of thinking about it. These goggles that are like night vision that have like, they've got the, uh, the jewelers thing on it. I can't think mm-hmm. of what that's called. And then uh, just, there's like all this stuff on them. But then she could just like flip them back and it just kind of looks like cat ears. It's just, yeah. I don't know. Kind of fun. Yeah. So, of course, the other major character that gets added to this is Tom Hardy's Bane. So after being cast as Bane, Tom Hardy, he gained 30 pounds of muscle for the role. He's 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 pretty jacked in the role because uh, Tom Hardy's not a big dude. He's like five foot nine. He's not like a big hulking guy, but he gained a lot of muscle for this. Uh, and of course, Bane, as we mentioned before, had been in Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin, we got less than stellar results from that version of Bane, I would (laughs) say. Uh, So Hardy made very specific, he made pains to create a much more menacing character because that character in Batman and Robin is pretty goofy and not very scary uh, because he's silly. That that version was played by Robert Swenson, uh, who was, I think, a professional wrestler. He was an ex-professional wrestler, a.k.a. Jeep Swenson. Jeep? Jeep Swinson. And I, I, this up I would implore you to go look at Robert Swinson's Wikipedia profile and look at the photo that they have chosen of him. Oh, wait a minute. Now I'm going to do that. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say just as I'm looking here uh, that I looked up the number of people named Jeep in the U.S. And it's like at 166. What is this photo? Switzerland with his wife and daughter in 1996. <laughs> and everybody appears to be naked. Yes, they appear to be nude. What? And he is he is very <laughs> wide. Uh, but I don't know why you would take a photo like that with your wife and daughter. And it is very strange. Oh. She's not like a baby. She's like a full grown person. That is very odd. Uh, it's disturbing. But we will, we'll be respectful since he passed away in 1997, apparently. Um, yeah, he, he had a heart attack, I think. All right, just saying, don't, you know, better daughter doesn't show that to the hubby or anything. <laughs> so Tom Hardy, in, in order to create a more menacing character, one thing that he wanted to do is he wanted to create a distinct contradiction between the character's voice and the character's physical appearance. So in an interview with Vulture, he talks about where he got this voice. Part of it, the the accent is a kind of a combination of two things. It's one, it's uh, based on the character's comic book origins, who I think he's South American in the comic. Yeah, he's definitely Latin American. He's uh, he's yeah. probably like a uh, what I looked this up earlier, and it is like somewhere off the Caribbean or something. But okay. yeah, but he also claims to have based it on the voice of a gypsy bare knuckle boxer, uh, an Irish guy by the name of Bartley Gorman. So I'm gonna play a clip so that you can hear what Bartley Gorman sounds like. When you get men, in, when I get men in front of me, they try to kill me. They try to wipe me off the face of the earth. And the men behind them shouting to them, "Kill him! Kill him! Kill him!" So you know what I mean. There ain't no referee going to jump in. Oh, he's got a cut over his eye. See you know what I mean? Uh, stop it! There's a cut over his eye. There's no stop it. Not if you rip my heart out. They wouldn't stop it. Before me, there's always been kings or the gypsies. Before me, Uriah Burton, Big Just, was a king of the gypsies. And when he died, I inherited his title. 
I fought Johnny Fletcher. Then I become the champion of the gypsies. The king of the gypsies. The king of the gypsies, Justin. That's who yeah. he is. That's actually, that that um, clip is from a documentary called The King of the Gypsies. That's about Bartley Gorman, but uh, interesting voice, character. Yeah, I, I saw like where, you know, the voice put people off. I mean, I think probably because everybody has this idea of what Bane would sound like, but Hardy. Well, in, the, in the comics, he's got an odd accent, doesn't he? Don't they stylize his dialogue kind of in a weird way? Not not really. No, maybe I mean, I'm thinking I feel like they else. do lean into, like, I mean, maybe they have accents stuff in certain places, but I just think everybody has an idea of, like, what Bane would sound like. Right. Like, with a maybe, like, a deep voice or something menacing, but Hardy, like, turns it completely on his head. Um, I saw a couple of interviews where he did say, obviously, Bartley Gorman, like you mentioned, but he started with an idea of, he said, Bane is somebody who's in tremendous pain all of the time. So he pictured him with like this older voice, sort of like a Richard Burton, he said. He said, I suppose, you know, slightly florid camp English villain in many ways, but it's something that's just off center. And he said, but the other parts he knew people would be concerned with is Bane's Latin American descent. And he said that uh, taking that into mind, I, I looked at, I started going back into Latin and looked at the original Latin and sort of came out with this uh, Romani gypsy. Uh, he was like, and then there was this this character, uh, Bartley Gorman, the bare knuckle fighter. And that's where the accent comes from that I use in the film. Um, he said he wanted to underpin the Latin, but like a Rom- Romani Latin. That, that makes, Latino. I mean, that's a good decision on his part. Because if he had just done like a, a, a straight up Latin American accent. He could very, I mean, as a, as a clearly a very white guy like that would probably not have gone over very well, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's a good yeah. point. I yeah, mean, and I, th- I just think there was, uh, I see why he would choose that. And he wanted, he wanted him to sound very old and very like weathered and kind of beaten. But the point of him sounding like he'd been in pain is, um, is it is it interesting? Is a good choice. I just question how there's some very there's some very strong dialogue here in this movie that he gets, and I think some of it doesn't land as well because of the accent or because of the mask or because of post production design on the voice. And I, I I don't know. It's I I get it, and I everybody's shooting for the moon in this one. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're alone. Some of it doesn't land as well as I think. I I happen to be a fan of it myself. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's just Tom Hardy. And I think one of the things you get with Tom Hardy is you got to, Nolan seems to do this, like trust your actor to pick the right thing. Yeah, Um, I mean, he's definitely letting the actor do their own thing mm -hmm. because that's not a voice that Christopher Nolan picked out. I don't, I, I, I understand people not digging it because it is, it's a bizarre choice. But the more I've seen this film, I've probably seen it maybe three or four times before this. Um, now, maybe this is probably my third time seeing it, maybe fourth. I I like it more and more each time. I think it's a really, fu- it's really fun. It's a fun voice. And, and I think it's pretty effective. I don't think it, I, I know that people thought it was kind of goofy when this movie first came out. That was one of the things that people often commented on, but it's always worked for me. It's, it's never come across as silly. It's come across as weird. 
Well, certainly. I mean, it's certainly weird, but I think the idea that to this day people still remember, I having only seen the movie in the theaters, still remember what Bane sounds like and Bane quotes and stuff like that. So for better or worse, it worked at least in that aspect um, of it. And I know that, I mean, I, I expect that Christopher Nolan knew what he was getting into. I saw plenty of interviews where he said he knew right away Tom Hardy, uh, like as soon as they decided what this role was, uh, supposedly like called him up. It said, I think the actual conversation they say they had is like, he said, I'd love, I have this role. I'd love for you to do it. You might not like it because you're going to be wearing a mask the whole time. And he pitches the whole thing to Tom and Tom says, he said like, so I'm going to travel the fucking world, play with an entire stunt crew and a shit ton of weapons. And all I got to do is wear a mask. I am in. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> But but like you said, too, I mean, he puts on that muscle and Nolan and Tom decided early yeah. on. It's like a, it's a different kind of build. It's not just any kind of muscle. It's like he doesn't want Mr. Universe. He needs no. to be a badass, tough guy, circus yeah. strongman style. So yeah. he's bulking and practicing fighting constantly, which sounds familiar uh, from the first movie. He said, and so I don't I don't think you could get anybody better to match the physical style of acting that Christian Bale does than Tom Hardy. Uh, yeah, no, and and of course Nolan and Hardy had worked together on Inception before this, because uh, yeah. Tom Hardy has a pretty significant role in that. Uh, the other two cast members that were added to this, uh, Marion Cotillard and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, were also in uh, in Inception. From so Marion Cotillard plays Miranda Tate, aka Talia Al Ghul, as we find out towards the end of the film, and then Joseph Gordon plays a new character who's not based on anyone from the comics by the name of John Blake. Marion Cotillard, like she, he wanted her too. I, I saw a bunch of stuff about that. I just really wanted her. He invited her initially in like 2010 and she was pregnant and she didn't know if she'd be able to make it, but he just didn't take her out as the person who was playing Miranda Tate. And mm -hmm. eventually she came back. She was even filming in like France at the same time. She flew like back and forth Jesus. to do the role. <laughs> And uh, Nolan talks about like he knew then and saw it during the filming. Like she's a superwoman. She just gave birth and then just it's amazing to see how hard she works. And that's part of the reason he wanted her. Well, I think um, knowing um, Chris Nolan's uh, affinity for people's eyes, I think she has very a very striking uh, striking facial features. Yeah. And of course, that accent, it's it obviously French, but like there's an exotic, there's an unpinpointable exoticness to it. Yeah. I think, which makes her very uh, captivating on screen. Yeah, so, she's, she's really excellent. Yeah. Uh, even, even in a fairly not showy role like this is because she doesn't, she's, it's a fairly straightforward role for the majority of the film, but I think she right. pulls it off nicely. Yeah. I saw uh, that besides uh, this side note stuff, but uh, for Catwoman, uh, besides Anne Hathaway, Natalie Portman, Kira Knightley, Kate Mara, Gemma Arterton, Jessica Biel, Blake Lively, Lady Gaga, and Charlotte Riley, who was Tom Hardy's fiance at the time, they all auditioned for Selena Kyle. But Hathaway, Biel, and Mara all went past and got screen tested, actually. So I could honestly see any of them in the role. Yeah, yeah, I could see it too. I could, I could definitely see. You said Kate Mara or Rooney? Yeah, Kate Mara. Kate Mara. Yeah, I could see Kate Mara doing that. 
Yeah. And so uh, supposedly like are there are there screen can, tests floating around out there somewhere? Uh, you know, I didn't look, but probably possibly. not because Nolan has said that he doesn't like even on DVDs and Blu-rays or whatever, doesn't like including things like that, doesn't like including um well, I think Christian Bale's audition might have shown up, but even he wasn't very happy that that was on like one of the Blu-rays. Nolan has said like he doesn't like including deleted scenes necessarily or or outtakes or bloopers or anything like that because he's like that's not what the actor signed up to show. They signed up to show the final product, you know. So mm. it's not really fair to them to release this footage that's wasn't ever intended to be seen by anyone but that that inside crew. One thing I thought was interesting that a reviewer pointed out just on the casting side of this is just that uh, I forget where it was. I read it. So sorry. But, uh, you know, they pointed out this movie has like six Oscar winners in it, like between Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Morgan Freeman, Gary Oldman, uh, Marion Cotillard and Anne Hathaway has three Oscar nominees, Tom Conti, Liam Neeson and Tom Hardy. Um, and, and if you want to get crazy, you can count Maggie Gyllenhaal and archive footage. And so you've got like 10 Oscar nominees in this That's movie, which is just crazy wild. for like yeah. a comic book movie. Comic, a yeah. third, third part of a comic book trilogy. Right. <laughs> yeah. So in looking for new locations for this film, especially for the location of the prison where, where Bane and Bruce Wayne spend time, uh, Nolan had, he had his location scouts going all over the world. They went to, um, they would look to India. They looked to Romania. They looked to Michigan, which is odd. <laughs> but they were looking at like the turd assault mines in Romania. They ended up shooting it in India. Uh, and as he had done in the dark night, he shot a lot of the film in the IMAX format. Uh, the dark Knight rises actually has over twice as much IMAX footage as the dark Knight. It's got over an hour. The dark Knight had about 28 minutes. I think a lot of that I, I, I cinematographer Wally Feister, like he, they had kind of refined their style with the IMAX shooting. And so they were, kind of digging it and uh nolan said he'd shoot the whole movie in imax if he could yeah yeah they both <laughs> they wanted to do that and and i think they were getting pressure some stuff i read said they were getting pressure to do 3d which they were both like no f you we're not doing yeah. 3d but yeah like you said i think approximately it was like one hour 12 minutes it was like one third of the movie ended up being imax and the rest of it they did in 35 millimeter or this like 70 millimeter uh like vista film or something i forget what yeah. they called it which is close but not quite imax yeah, yeah. but different it, cameras though not not quite as unwieldy right well what they did this time is i mean they worked with panavision um and retooled the imax cameras completely like retooled the viewfinders the lenses Vicer got with them they designed like a whole new lens for the imax that was able to like turn all the way up, but like shoot in dark or something. It was, uh, I, you know, it's a lot more technological than I'm familiar with, but uh, yeah, they, they just, you know, it was the only times it's not used, it gets like every action scene, like all the major action at least is, is in IMAX, but it was like, you know, Justin mentioned, I think last episode that they're loud, they're really loud. And so they didn't want to use it in scenes where it would affect performances uh right. either from the sound or just being intrusive in general some of the stuff i read said nolan uh, apparently hates adr or like re-recording uh dialogue so he thinks it's like never going to be better than in the moment on the day you know so they obviously backed off there yeah, well, yeah I mean, you can't really shoot a lot of dialogue scenes with it, it, with that imax camera so right. using it for action scenes makes sense but it also forces them to 
shoot a little bit differently because it is, as we said, shaped differently. And they try to fit as much like as they can within that IMAX frame. Uh, and it's it's really striking visually in some of these scenes. I mean, it's it's really cool. Obviously, the the opening plane heist, you know, like it just gives it an, an, a scope of epicness that you don't get otherwise. Yeah. And, and part of that comes from Nolan's insistence to shoot on location as well. We talked about this a little bit in the last couple movies, especially in Batman Begins, where they go and they shot on a fucking glacier. Watching it this far out from when it was released, I still like this that opening plane stuff. Like I was like, my God, this movie is beautiful. Yeah. Like, it is just, yeah. and that's been one of the big takeaways for these movies that I, I don't know if the legacy uh, reflects on that enough. Like just how gorgeously shot these movies are and yeah. that, and just epic on a scale that nothing else is. I mean, even, you know, God bless them, the MCU, like it's just insane. Like the the stuff they do in here, like that. You, you mentioned the opening plane sequence. I mean, that's all real. That's like all they, practical shooting in air. Like yeah, yeah. it's it's <laughs> all of this movie is more real than I think people realize, and yeah. it's like a process. Like I mean, they brought in different plane parts and different planes from all over the freaking world to like make this one scene happen. And uh, like the only parts that aren't actually a plane in the air is, I mean, like they actually had a plane on a gimbal that like turned up. Right. So you could have the scenes like falling through the cabin or whatever. Um, and, but they, I mean, they trained state uh, skydivers to like, they tried it with dummies and stuff, but they trained like skydivers to stage the attack on the plane, yeah. like wing walking <laughs> and flying out the back of it and stuff. It's just like, how cool of a job. I mean, so what, not are, to so me. what are you doing? At work? <laughs> oh, we're learning how to jump from one plane to another plane to make it. And yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and like <laughs> even the plane, like they did. So like, I think the only digital part of that scene or like the main digital part is like when it's the planes upright and it's tight and the wings break off and stuff. I think that yeah. part was done digitally, but like the actual plane dropping down, they had to like search forever to find like areas to drop a plane. plane fuselage. <laughs> yeah. An entire plane. Where's it okay uh, to do this? Is like they were like, it's harder than you think to find a spot. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, speaking to how epic this movie feels, so they they started filming. Filming began in uh Jodhpur, India at the I'm probably gonna butcher this name, but the Mirangar Fort. Uh so that's that's where they shoot you. I mean, it's the, the footage is clear in the film. It's when Bruce comes out of the, the well. Yeah. But then they moved to Pittsburgh. And in Pittsburgh, they shot in several locations, most notably at Heinz Field. So this is where it comes into that that sort of epic scale of filmmaking because Steeler Heinz Nation, Field, baby. Yeah, you're a Steelers fan, right? I am. So uh, nice. Heinzville stood in for the stadium where the Gotham football team, the Gotham Rogues played, and several members of the Steelers appear in the film. You see Ben Roethlisberger and several others in there. Uh, and the, but the, this is where it gets crazy. They brought in more than eleven thousand extras for this scene, which is not something that filmmakers do now. They'll usually digitally create crowds. They'll bring in, they'll bring in a, a crowd to fill in one section of the stadium, and then they'll just multiply that over the course of the in the entire stadium. But no, they just brought in eleven thousand people into Heinz Stadium to be in in this Batman movie. Yep. So and I saw it, some stuff with uh, what's uh, Nolan's wife's name? Who's the producer? Uh, Emma Thomas. Emma Thomas. Yeah, she's talking about this. <laughs> I thought this was funny. She's like, uh, 
she was like, we wanted to have some actual people there. We were like, how do we get a crowd in this stadium? And then she's like, turns out there's a company called Big Crowds Company. And, and <laughs> wonder what just, they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's like, so you just hire them and they get people. She said, we were a day of, they were hoping for like 10,000 people. And 11.5, they think, by the end of the day, they had show up. I mean, they, listen, you tell a bunch of people from Pittsburgh that they can come not only hang out in Heinz Field and watch the Pittsburgh Steelers be in a movie, but it's also a Batman movie, people are going to show up. <laughs> they yeah, said they'd I mean, hope they'd stay till lunch because, you know, they're just sitting in stands all day. But, like, they think that, that by the end of the day, the shooting day, they had every the same number of people still wow. there. A and, buddy, of, A buddy of mine and his girlfriend at the time – went and oh, yeah? they're, and they're, they're in the crowd. In, yeah they're in the stadium and That's it was fun. just i mean they drove from virginia like <laughs> oh wow I think, it, I think if you just put the call out there of like People hey are gonna show up batman <laughs> just well it, it's it's just like you know another pittsburgh native uh mr george romero you know when they made a call for people to come be in a george romero zombie movie pittsburgh residents want to do that yeah you know speaking Absolutely. of uh, speaking of uh george romero they did also shoot uh, several scenes at Carnegie Mellon University. Hell yeah. yeah, I saw that. I'm glad you brought that up. That is amazing. Uh, to tie it into our last series, uh, that whole <laughs> the whole thing at the, the end is, like, I mean, the fight scene with Bane and uh, Batman on the stairs, that's at Carnegie Mellon University. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's fun. That's, it was uh, at the, um, the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, old Romero stomping grounds. Yeah, and Savini. And Savini. It's so, uh well I, I want to talk that that sequence in in the stadium in the football stadium is I think one of the best sequences in the entire film because it is so well yeah. done. Uh, I mean it it's one of a couple of moments in the film where you really see how good Nolan is at creating these big set pieces. Because it builds and builds and builds. Not only is he good, sorry sorry if I'm cutting you off but the visionary because there's talk about like when they walk into that stadium and he's got these ideas he even says he walked in and there's all these like jaws dropped like dumbfounded looks of like okay well how are we going to do any of this shit (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it works so well and it's such a great moment in the film and it's it's like it goes from the you know you've got the mayor his suite blows up which is shocking but then, and you know something's going on, and you just start seeing explosions. And the way that he cuts between them, of course, the big moment is the the field itself sort of imploding while yeah. the, the football team is on it. Uh, but then you see manholes bursting, you know, in the street as John Blake's running through the streets. And then you get that giant overview of Gotham and explosions going off everywhere. And then the image of the the bridges exploding. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a really outstanding sequence. Because it's it's, it's really, so really far well it's so far back, like out of context, you'd be like, "Oh wow, this is a you know beautiful cityscape," and then you see something happen to the bridge in the back. Yeah, like is that? And then it happens to the bridge that's in the and foreground, and you're like, it on oh, like an shit. IMAX screen." Yeah, like really has impact because you're able to like look here and there, and yeah. you know, because well, as we mentioned last episode, when you're looking at IMAX, you're not able to visualize everything at once so a little bit of movement out of one corner is going to catch your eye and you look over there then you look at this other area of the screen where you see another bit of movement and it's another bridge blowing up and he's using the entire image in a way that you can't normally do well and he's just like 
upping the ante like you have to in sequels i guess but like it's it begins i mean not that you know Ra's al ghul's original plan was minuscule but batman definitely had more of the street level feel and then by the time it gets to this one now you're in disaster movie like war movie territory yeah. like you're the armies of cops versus thugs that are like running. There's literally like thousands of people like yeah, yeah. running it's towards epic. each other in this thing. I saw w- one thing with the stunt man talking about that is like, even in that moment where you know, like a cop gets shot or whatever, and he falls over and he's like, seems like a simple stunt, right? No, there's a thousand people behind you running at full speed. So you have yeah. to, to work <laughs> to make sure those people aren't just going to trample, trample that guy and kill him. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So after um, after wrapping in Pittsburgh, they moved to Los Angeles, New York. They actually used Trump Tower from Wayne Enterprises in this one, uh, which is gross. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then New Jersey, Glasgow, Nottingham, and Wales. So they're shooting this literally all over the world. Uh, there were, you know, you, you mentioned that the how how good the stuntmen are in this, Gary. There are a few. There were a few injuries, a few accidents on the film. Uh, in Scotland, when they were shooting in Glasgow, a stuntman was doing a parachuting stunt and crashed through the roof of a house and got stuck. <laughs> now, Imagine it wasn't him just there like, Dark Knight Rises in theaters, June 2012. <laughs> he didn't get seriously hurt, so which is good. And then, uh, and another, there were there were more than just these two incidents, but. And another one, Anne Hathaway's stunt double, who's named Jolene Van Voot. I'm yeah, probably think that's fucking that close. up, but she was specifically her her motorcycle stunt double. Uh, she she rode the. She, motor, she's the, like one of those uh, crazy motorcyclists. She was the first woman to do like the reverse 360 on a motorcycle. I'm right. trying to think of what those events are called. Your brother, the circus. Into, yeah, the circus, <sighs> nitro motor, circus, nitro circus. Yeah, that yeah. thing. So she was riding the as we mentioned before, the notoriously difficult to ride bat pod. And she, there's a scene where she has to pilot it down a set of stairs and she crashed it into an IMAX camera, which as we know are like <laughs> 70 grand a piece. These fools uh, can't help but wreck an IMAX. Like, <laughs> they got to wreck at least, I think they broke like four of them on this movie. Jeez. <laughs> it's crazy because I mean, it's Nolan's commitment to like doing these things physically, like even the things they couldn't do, that they wanted to do would they break into uh applied sciences up at the top and like Bane's place they're legitimately dropping it's a one-third scale batmobile through it's still a, pretty big yeah but it's yeah. still pretty big yeah that's legit it's all dropping through there like onto the floor and so you got to play it for, i don't know it's just it's crazy the the amount of the effects in the stunt crew uh, what they do in these movies it's yeah. it's crazy so what I think the most unique visuals in the film design wise is, is Bane's design. I mean, obviously you had to, you had yeah. to get the mask, right? It's it's very different from the character's comic book mm-hmm. uh, design. Cause he does kind of, you, you mentioned earlier, he kind of looks like a luchador. Like that includes not just the mask, but the tunic he's wearing is very wrestler like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But this, this fits very much into Nolan's world. So costume designer, Lindy Hemming, she wanted this costume to look like it was kind of cobbled together from pieces of all the remote places that he had lived and traveled. Uh, so, for, for example, parts of his vest are made from fragments of an old military tent. And then his clothes, uh, Hemmings kind of explains them as, he says they're militaristic, but not in any way a uniform. And then 
combined yeah. with his coat, which Hemming actually personally designed. And it, she says that it took her two years. I to saw complete. that. Crazy. Uh, it's that coat has equal parts. It looks equal parts dictatorial and revolutionary. You know, well, like. And this is this is kind of way off, but as I was watching it, I was paying closer attention to the look of Bane. And do you know who made me think of Clarence Bodiger from RoboCop? Okay, yeah. If you look I mean, at his, he doesn't look with that like long a coat gang. Yeah, yeah, he's got that long coat, so he looks more like a a revolutionary. Well, like they, they designed leader. the um, they designed the coat partially on. I think it was the Swiss Army wears really long coats like that mm-hmm. and it's made of like a lamb's hide that's yeah. really difficult to work with apparently and they, they had a hard time finding seamstresses like in los angeles who could actually work with it yeah so for and for the mask that she wanted it to kind of look animalistic like uh and it does i mean it, it really it. does <laughs> yeah uh, so they, they said that like nolan and her were like on the same page animalistic he had this idea for like a gorilla or a baboon burying its teeth yeah. that she liked she was looking at like tarantulas and stuff like that. Oh. She would have like mandible, like something, something mm-hmm. in to do with it that. Kinda, it kind of falls somewhere in between those. Yeah, yeah. they, they kind of modeled it there. What they ended up doing, she said, is they finally decide, okay, but what's practical, like this guy's in a prison. So he's getting like, what what's the likely scenario? He got some like old mechanic that built this thing for him. And they're taking like bits of, aircraft parts or something and you know like that kind of thing and that kind of molded well, into what it was nolan's concept for the mask was that basically it's giving him where whereas in the comics it's feeding him venom which is it's yeah. like strength uh the thing that gives him his strength but that, that's not part of his story in this at all but in this nolan wanted it to be like he's getting like an anesthetic sort of right that gives him that takes away just enough because he, he was injured so badly in the pit that it's giving him just enough, it's taking just enough of that pain away for it to make him be able to, able to function, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's not, it's not that they didn't try, by the way, like there, there's some footage you can find or, or drawings you can find of like all of the mat. They ran through like a shit ton a of mass designs. Yeah, a bunch of them. And uh, there are some that are close to the comic. I mean, there are some that they, I mean, go for like a full face covering and then just the device on it and that sort of thing. So they, they were looking at it, but they just decided what would be more practical. And then some of it I saw they were discussing with Hardy that, you know, what do you need to make this work for you if you've got to wear a mask? And his thing was the eyes, that if he could have enough of his eyes to like really emphasize what he was doing, that it that it would work. And, and, and God bless him. They said he was super patient the whole time because this mask was super fitting like gripping his face yeah well yeah what they did uh so costume effects supervisor graham churchyard he created a 3d model of hardy's face and his like his face his entire skull basically so that they could design the mask where it would just perfectly contour to his face like Mm -hmm. it's a part of him which would be also also tom hardy's only five nine by the way so he also had lifts in his shoes just in case anybody's wondering (laughs) <laughs> so the film introduces a whole and new I noticed vehicle. they shot him from really low angles most of the well, time yeah I mean he's just throwing that in they there. do a good job <laughs> I mean they just needed him to look as an imposing force as they could I mean obviously they, they do what you're talking about some thuds when he's walking and they get like they, they work to make him seem heavy and mean mm-hmm. and menacing including in his fighting style which we can talk about in a minute but uh, I also want to point out that Catwoman's suit they could have gone with super sexy latex stitched together but they went with like practical 
mostly like i mean it's just like i mean like we talked about the goggles earlier but like just a regular dark suit that's not yeah. unlike batman's it could like be and not like, a what, like what a cat burglar suit. might want to wear you know yeah right Something. and her boots are amazing like you know you don't get to see them as up close except for like the time she uses them like on the one guy where he's like does it hurt to walk in heels like that and then she like or do, or do those heels hurt your legs or something? And she like kicks his knee out. She's like, I don't know, do they? And uh, <laughs> but those those boots have like a knife on the yeah. heel, like it's yeah. a straight up like blade on one side, and it's uh, uh I forget the word I'm trying to find, but it's a puncture, uh, it's a puncture on the tip. Yeah, it's got a puncture yeah. on the tip. Yeah, it's just serrated. like uh, serrated. The, That's the yeah, word I was serrated. trying to think of. But yeah, serrated on the inside of the heel. Like it's kind of cool. So it seems like a perfectly, you know, as much as heels could be like a practical, like, yeah, she's got a reason they exist. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of Nolan's whole thing is like, everything needs to have a practical purpose. I also love just in, in general, not to spend all day on this, but like that her design of her outfits are even that way. Like just her regular Mm -hmm. outfits, like the way she goes from like made uniform to like, it becomes an elegant dress, you know, so that she fits in from place to place. She becomes like this, uh, one second she's Audrey Hepburn, but she's really like James Bond. Like she just like switches in and out, and it's a uh, I don't know. It's just kind of well, kind of the perfect combination of fashion and function. There you go. Yeah. Whereas you know you know we've seen we've seen Bruce's we've seen the Bat costume you know develop and then out of necessity like hey he's got to be able to turn his head you know so they made the changes there and then uh, Bane's costume you know. Uh, cobbled together from a bunch of different things. And, uh, and then, you know, for her, it's, you know, she needs to be able to strip away a few pieces and look like a completely different person. So they designed it appropriately. Looks great. So this film introduces a whole new vehicle to Batman's arsenal as well, which is just called the bat. Uh, Nolan was like, I tried to think of different names for it. That would like be the bat combined with something that flies like the bat copter or whatever, but he's just like bats fly. So it's just the bat. So Nathan Crowley, once again, designed it. He approached the design as if it were an actual military project. You know, they wanted it to like, and it is based on like a dual bladed helicopter, but they wanted it to fit in the same family that as, as like the tumbler and the bat pod, they wanted it to look like it was made for the same purpose by the same people. Cause in the, in the reality of the film, it is. I the, say so the, they should just go with the bat chopper. The bat chopper, but yeah. it's not really a chopper. It's not, I mean. No, no, I meant like that. Like I, I think of the old cartoon, he had like an actual helicopter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. on the old show or something. <laughs> so it's it's size and shape proved pretty difficult considering Nolan's desire to use practical effects over CGI. Uh, and this kind of blew my mind, but a lot of the scenes of the bat are not computer generated, at least not fully, but they are instead uh, a model that was not a full size model necessarily every time, but a model supported by wires and they would suspend them from cranes or helicopters or mount them onto vehicles with hydraulic controls to kind of create the movement. Now they would sometimes supplement that with CGI, but it's primarily practical, which is wild. You you don't even notice it in the times that it is CGI. I mean, they really did. Like you said, like, I mean, they're hanging it from helicopters moving through to get some footage. I mean, they, they legitimately, uh, Besides Crowley, by the way, who was hanging out with Christopher Nolan, if just so we complete this circle too. Yes, they started in the garage. Of course. All of the designs <laughs> with this. Um, 
but uh, I think it's Nolan's garage. I don't know. I don't know. Right. But this guy, you can. It, it, I, I saw something that had like footage of like the the Bat Cave that he built and like all of this stuff. Um, but uh, the you know they they, they talk about it. Uh, Chris Corbold and Scott Fisher in the special effects department were like the big guys that were with Crowley on this, and uh, they designed all of these amazing things. They were like the one thing we couldn't get it to do was actually fly. And honestly, if we could have, we'd be much richer men than we are right now. <laughs> we sold this off to the military. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they, these rigs, it's not just like a crane, like swinging it around. They had the thing going like 600 feet down a street. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. they had this thing working and it's just, uh, I don't know. And then the truck, the truck they had it mounted on was like a gimbal and then the thing is there they just phase out the truck but it's amazing to watch because it's just like going along it can uh it can actually move and bank the aircraft like on top of it and inside no lie there's, there's like an a, animatronic bruce yeah there's uh, in, a fully in, articulated yeah, yeah. animatronic batman inside who turns you never see and, in the movie yeah, yeah. he turns his head that. he looks around he presses the controls <laughs> it's just i don't know it's that's just crazy amazing and then they get and then I, I watched the whole thing on the sound design of the thing where richard that, king that was very fascinating yeah, yeah he's like manipulating they created like they called it the johnson modification for a weed whacker where they like can replace different types of blades on the weed whacker and they run it through and so they'll get like jet engine sounds and then this weird weed whacker stuff they even take some like animal sounds and like just just for the sound effects for the bat it's just uh <laughs> I don't know. It's just fascinating stuff they did here. And it's cool as shit. I mean, it's it's really awesome. So we mentioned earlier that uh, Hans Zimmer returned again on this one, but I think he's, and he does a lot of the same, you know, he does Batman's theme very similarly, and it it pops up a lot more in this one than in, than in The Dark Knight, probably because there's so many kind of heroic Batman's back moments kind of thing in this one. Mm-hmm. I will say for him though, that like early Batman stuff, when it shows him, I mean, it's definitely a more ethereal, uh, I guess that would be the word for it. Sound yeah. uh, like it's more somber, somber. There's no brass. Like we talked about, even with Harvey, the evolution of that, like it's a ghostly yeah, version the of the bat was ghostly. And it's very, that's spot on. Well, it I does think, feel very haunting. <laughs> one of the coolest parts of the score in this one that he introduced is that chant, the Deshi Basara chant. Yeah. So this is a, um, actually, they. Th- when I was reading up on it, nobody could tell what language it is, but they were trying to think of like a chant to do, to have people do in this movie. And Christopher Nolan like texted Hans Zimmer these words, Deshi Basara. Uh, and Nolan was never able to fully figure out what language it was but he was told that it meant the rise yeah or to yeah. rise yeah i was gonna say i saw that or like yeah rise and uh so yeah. so they decided to use this and it's it's very effective in the film i think but what the way zimmer got it on tape for the for the film is so he wanted thousands of voices on the soundtrack he didn't just want like a few people in a studio he wanted like literally thousands of voices on this so he actually crowdsourced the internet to get it he he put, went on twitter and he posted a link to this website where users could go on and submit themselves chanting uh, and which of course as soon as he posted it it crashed the website servers they had to get it back going again but they got thousands and thousands of submissions to where like he says that there are tens of thousands of voices on this and a lot of those are you know, 
just people who went on Twitter and clicked on this link and submitted their voices That's doing awesome. this chant, which I think is really cool to for a fan to be able to watch the movie and going like, yeah, okay, my voice is in there with 10,000 other voices, but that's kind of a cool thing to be a yeah. part of a movie. Yeah, it's absolutely. fun to see like Hans Zimmer has become like one of my favorite people just because of these movies, but just to see him talk about some of the stuff where he says, you know, after the last movie, he didn't think there was anything left for them to do, but he found this whole new world of things. Like they wanted voices and, uh, but Nolan was very concerned with, I don't want a choir. I want like voices. And uh, so then they, all the stuff Justin just said, but then they wanted it to sound like a ritual, like even with the escape from the pit and that sort of thing. So it's in like five, four times. So it gets this like sense of urgency, but then he gets the orchestra uh, involved and he's just like, just play just like, but like attack your instruments, you know, just like not, you're not, you could hit a note that's within a certain range, but like you're really just kind of attacking the instruments. Uh, he describes it as like, uh, we took, you know, and obviously he's Hans Zimmer, so he would think this. He says, we took the greatest achievement of Western civilization and then we just reduced it back down to tribalism, like this thing. And so they, they started having them just like hit their stuff, like yeah. just bang on your instruments and uh, just to go with the rhythm of the whole thing. And I just thought that was amazing. He just sounds like he's having a blast. He is. Yeah. So the dark Knight rises was released on July 20th, 2012. And we have to, I think address one major news item that's related to this. I think we'd be remiss to talk about this movie without addressing this, but yeah. There was, many of you may know this story, but because it was all over the news, of course, but at a midnight screening of the film in Aurora, Colorado, a gunman uh, comes in wearing a gas mask and he opens fire inside of the theater, killed 12 people, injured 58 other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the police apprehended him. He was hanging out like by his car uh, outside of the theater as a 24-year-old by the name of James Egan Holmes. Uh, it was later found, he actually told the police, he's like, I booby trapped my apartment as well. And they found a bunch of explosives there, which were dismantled by a bomb squad the next day. Uh, And he went to trial. He initially pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, but he was eventually convicted. He was sentenced to 12 consecutive life sentences, plus 3,318 years without parole. Jesus. And a lot of, a lot of people associate, they, they associated him, you know, there were these rumors that he was obsessed with the Joker and things like that, all of which ended up being unsubstantiated. Uh, his, it turned out in the end that the most likely reason that he chose this particular theater was because he knew it would be crowded because he knew there would be a lot of people in there. Yeah. And cause there, there were, there was, you know, after police started investigating him afterwards, there were clear signs that he was mentally ill and that he had hinted that he was going to do something violent. It had nothing to do with Batman or the movie, or, or which is what a lot of people tried to pin it on at the time. But it was it became clear that yeah, he he knew that this movie was going to be a big hit. If he goes, it's a midnight screening of it is going to be almost completely full, if not completely full. So that's why he chose it, which sucks. Yeah. Uh, as a result of the shooting, Warner Brothers did cancel its premieres for the film in Paris, Mexico, and Japan. They called them off completely. And they pulled a lot of the like TV ads and things like that for the next few weeks afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also speculation that that was going to hurt the film's box office numbers, but that turned out to not be the case. There were some uh, early screenings that were a little bit lower, but the movie still earned $448 million in North America alone, earned over a billion dollars worldwide. It actually 
was the second highest grossing film of the year behind the Avengers and the highest grossing film in the Dark Knight trilogy. This made more money than the Dark Knight did. In addition to its box office success, it also received, it's funny because I remember this receiving like mixed reviews, but if you go back and look at it, it received almost not unanimously, but it's at like almost 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. It received very favorable reviews from critics. Uh, it, however, did not receive like the awards attention that The Dark Knight did. It didn't receive any Academy Award nominations like mm. The Dark Knight did. Uh, although Anne Hathaway did get nominated for um, Favorite Female Butt Kicker Award at the 2013 Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards. Nice. So there's well, that. She, well, she lost. nominated but didn't win? No, she lost to Kristen Stewart for Snow White and the Huntsman. Oh, uh, man. <laughs> Who also beat out Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow in the Avengers and what? Jennifer Lawrence as Katniss in the first Hunger Games. Just oh. proving that kids are fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, a, I feel worse for Nolan because I think this was his first movie, like maybe since Insomnia that hadn't like received some kind of Academy Awards attention. I don't feel bad for Christopher Nolan. He's doing fine. No, no. Well, I mean, I bet that, you know, sarcastically. He's, he, he is okay. And, uh, you know, it's, it's too bad that this one didn't, but I don't really, I mean, we kind of talked about the Academy Awards in the last one, just uh, they, they were still on their way to even thinking about movies like this. Sure. Of for the most part. I'm uh, but but, but then at the same time, you know, it's culturally relevant where I think I saw like all of their IMAX midnight screenings in like New York city were sold out like six months in advance. Yeah, it was wild. And so this is, you know, when you think like something, I wouldn't say that it was as impactful culturally as like say 89's Batman where the logo was on everything. It was certainly a big deal by the time this movie rolled around. Speaking of reviews, Justin, one thing uh, that would, you know, normally we wait till the end of the show, but now would be a perfect time to mention that some, some reviewers uh, that God help us all hopefully don't get ranked on Rotten Tomatoes uh, did not have a good time with this movie. And so here would be the perfect time to tell you that somebody needs a nap. (laughs) All right. First up, we've got Madison Wood and uh, her, her, his or her subject line. They, their subject line says, how does Bade eat? Does he have a feeding tube? Uh, Christopher Nolan, please stop. There are so many things wrong with this movie, but every time I finish watching it, my brain is immediately wiped, and I remember almost nothing about it other than how good Killian Murphy looks when he randomly shows up near the end. Tom Hardy's impossibly Jack body looks good in that one scene where he's shirtless in the cave or whatever. But seriously, if Chris Nolan covers his beautiful face in any more films, I'm going to file a lawsuit. Definitely not my fave Tom Hardy film. Glad it helped Tom's Hardy career, but my God, they made him look big in this movie. And for what? So he could kick Batman's ass? So he could put his hand on a shorter man's shoulder and say, do you feel in charge? Okay, yeah. Granted, that scene is pretty hot, but Tom Hardy is 5'9", and this movie would not have me believe that he's like 6'11". <laughs> and that is the review of wow. Madison. She was horny Ooh. on Maine. Wow. <laughs> <She was. laughs> Uh, this is from uh, Damon Demon Cycler. Uh, Avengers rocked. This movie sucked. <laughs> what? 
that even mean? S O C K E D or S U C K? S O C K E D. Socked. Gotcha. Too uh-huh. long. What? Two hour, 45 minute movie? The villain was terrible. Anne Hathaway embarrassed cat women everywhere. And Alfred was a little whitey bitch. Nothing <laughs> fun about this movie. <laughs> trout have more soul than this Batman. A trout is a fish for those of you apathetic morons <laughs> reading this review. So breathe in the bat fart, Gotham. You've earned it. This movie was almost as good as Steel. However, you might say Shaq's acting was superb in comparison. This movie was only slightly better than, nope, can't think of a worse movie. Compared to this movie, Son of Mask kicked ass. Even John Ritter was a better hero at large. By the way, do you guado-chomping movie review readers realize that idiot humans are causing the demise of Cairo Petra? What? Stop <laughs> spelunking. You are spreading disease and killing off all of the bats. Bats are crucial in the maintenance of a healthy ecosystem. <laughs> what the fuck? Guy. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. That, that went off the rails really quick. Wow. I'm going to do one more if I can real quick. This is a uh, too long, pointless, and completely fake characters and plot. It's from Carl Brown. He said, my son wanted to watch this, so I did. What motivates Bane to destroy a city with 10 million residents? That's really the question that you ought to answer when you consider this movie. Is it greed, revenge, lust, class envy? Much to my surprise, it was for the love of a little girl. <laughs> oh, whoa. Whoa. <laughs> uh, because so many of us grown men decide to become homicidal maniacs because we want to protect little girls. Somebody needs, somebody flag this besides the unexplained fact that Bane has superhuman strength. Besides the silly unanswered, how does Bane eat with a mask on his face? Besides all these things, the whole plot and whole reason for tension is the ridiculous notion that the guy is motivated to destroy an entire city because he wants to protect this little girl. So why do I give this just one star? Because the whole world that Bruce Wayne lives in is fake. The characters are fake, especially Bane. And the message is that if you care about a little girl and things don't go your way, you might become a homicidal maniac. Right. All the more reason I don't like this. The movie blurs right from wrong. Was Bane a good guy to care about a little girl? Was the girl good when she loved Bruce Wayne? Was Catwoman good or was she just stealing to pay her rent? Was it okay to trick the whole city into believing that Batman was the bad guy and Harvey Dent was the good guy? The whole good part of this movie is without thinking deeply about it, the casual moviegoer will leave thinking that class envy was the root of Bane's rage and that class envy only leads to destruction. One person found this review helpful. Well, the thing here, here's the thing about that one, Gary, is that she made, I think it was a she, I can't remember, but it was Carl. Uh, Carl. Carl actually made some valid points there towards the end, uh, based on but 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 they, they were saying that like the, the film's confusion between I think they, they they thought the film was confused about what was right and wrong, but I think that's actually partially or at least mostly intentional you know like i I think that that they're saying that like it's a bad thing but it's intentional although the the question about whether about bane's motivations i think is actually a valid one uh honestly so i'm going to start this that's a makes a good segue to a a point that i wanted to make and I'm, i'm going to preface this by saying that i i like this movie and I think it's very entertaining. I think it's a very fitting conclusion to Batman's story, but it is not, and I don't think anyone would argue that it is, uh, but it's not the masterpiece 
that the Dark Knight was the, the the previous film was. It is it is not, and it would be hard for any film to reach those heights because that film has it is its centerpiece is a what will be forever considered a legendary performance by Heath Ledger. Right. Uh, I, I think it was a wise move to make a villain as different from the Joker as you could. And I think Tom Hardy does a great job. I think he's really good. I even love his weird voice as, as we discussed earlier, but it is a, it is a strange movie and it's a, it's a bit of a confused movie. I think Uh, at at nearly three hours long, which I don't normally mind a three hour long movie. I I don't, I didn't mind this. I don't necessarily mind this one being three hours long, but it, it oddly feels bloated, but also kind of rushed at the same time. Like the, like it, the sense of time in this movie doesn't quite work. Like how long is Bruce in that prison? Right. You know, it, it, you never really feel the sense of how long he's there because it's long enough for Bane to completely take over Gotham and seemingly long enough for Bruce's spine to fucking fuse back together. Like how long has he been in there for years? But I think it's only supposed to be a matter of a couple of months, yeah. but you never really get a sense of how long it's supposed to be. And it kind of, and, and that, that, lack of a sense of time kind of throws a lot of the second half of the film off because it feels like they're very rushed to hit different plot points to get to the conclusion. It almost feels like there is a six hour version of this movie out there uh, that this was actually, they had enough material for two movies that they crammed into one long movie instead. And I I kind of saw somewhere that that it was like five months in the pit. Yeah. Yeah, Which is still not, I'm sorry, not long enough for not being in a hospital for Bruce Wayne's spine that was protruding from his back that gets punched back into him by an old man to fuse back together without the aid of a hospital. That's, that's, I mean, it's, it's weird saying that's implausible because it's a fucking comic book movie, but it's comic book movie that pretends to be realistic. Right. Well, when that's, when that's your stated goal, right. Being, as realistic as possible. And uh, that was one of cats. One of cats, big complaints complaints about this movie is she gets really lost in the passage of time. She goes, it's, you know, at one point it's, you know, everything's fine. And then there's just, and then snow, like snow didn't fall. It just, it just crashed to the ground. And now, now it's winter. So, and yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to keep track. And that can be very, it never feels like you're spending months and months in that pit with Bruce Wayne. It feels like it's been a couple of weeks and all of a sudden he can walk again. Right. Uh, And and I kind of get the, the bloated portion of it because Christopher and and especially his brother, Jonathan Nolan, they have a lot of big ideas in their brains. Mm -hmm. Uh, Watch just a single episode of Westworld for proof, which is Jonathan Nolan's show. But even at even at two hours and forty five minutes, you don't really have enough time to address them all, all of the ideas that they're trying to introduce, and also deliver a thrilling action movie that propels itself forward. And that that sort of brings in where my my biggest issue with the film, and it's despite all of its big ideas, it's never really about anything because it doesn't take a side on on anything. It pays lip service to some pretty big ideas. The biggest one being probably the the idea of this wealth gap that's been created in Gotham. Like without the mob there, the the uh, the gap between the haves and the have-nots is very obvious. And it, and it never really explores it. You don't. You get the idea that see, like 
Bain's plan, his big idea hinges on the fact that the poor of Gotham, the poor people in Gotham have been so oppressed that they're willing to rise up and fight the rich because of the way that they've been kind of trodden upon by the, the rich people in Gotham. But you never really see that. You don't see any of this through the eyes of a regular Gothamite. So you never really get the sense that that's the case other than a couple of lines of dialogue here and there. I mean, the, the, the biggest kind of rich guy villain that you get in the movie is Ben Mendelsohn's character, who is very good in the role, by the way. I love Ben Mendelsohn. But yeah. his plot is just one rich guy kind of being an asshole to another rich guy. So it doesn't really fit within that theme, you know? Yeah. You get a you get, you get like a one line of dialogue that mentions that some of Gotham's homeless people are joining Bane's army going down to the the sewers because there's work to be found there. But that's really all you get. You don't really see them going through in, in any of the poor people in Gotham going through any kind of suffering. You don't really get a sense that they feel like they've been oppressed, which is kind of Bane's entire plan is based on that. You know, uh, you, you get Bane. He attacks the stock exchange. He's not in it for money. He's not, he's not really out to help the oppressed of Gotham. That's all kind of a facade to facilitate his, his whole league of shadows plan, which is to blow Gotham up basically. Yeah. Yeah. He's not really ever concerned with that. And I think most of what you're saying, I mean, wouldn't even stand out if it wasn't like a Christopher Nolan movie where he's so like, I don't know, like concerned with, being realistic about the whole thing. Well, but and, and because the Dark Knight was so thematically rich that this yeah. movie's themes being feeling so muddled feels like a, a misstep, especially as a follow-up. Yeah, I felt like in the Dark Knight, he was like trying to make a lot of statements, but didn't really pick a side necessarily either. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I could see, I mean, you know, we're being told like coming back into this, this is a rich and vibrant Gotham as opposed to what it had been like, or at least, you know, I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is like talking about, you know, pretty soon we're just going to have to be chasing down overdue library books because like crime's so low, I guess. But uh, well, that's the thing. That's another weird thing that the movie does is that that it, it tells you that the the reduction in crime in Gotham is based on this lie that, that Harvey Dent was a hero. Right. Mm-hmm. And how does the movie end with another lie that Batman has sacrificed himself? So Batman learns the lesson that, oh, this this lie that Harvey Dent was a hero. We lied to Gotham and we created this false sense of hope based on this lie. So how am I going to fix it? By telling another giant lie. And so it, the movie, like what the hell is the movie trying to say there? I think it's very confused about what it's trying to say with that. Yeah, that one didn't stand out as much to me. But I mean, I guess I see what you're saying. But I mean, Batman is dead technically, either way you look at it at the end of this movie. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the character, this, but he still lives as a symbol, you know, which is Bruce's whole thing. But how long is that going to last? Obviously, even the movie thinks that it's not going to last too long because the movie ends with us seeing the next guy who's going to be Batman, you know? So even yeah. the movie knows that it's on shaky ground. Well, and I think he even sees like with the kids, like drawing the symbols everywhere and stuff that it's realized it's, it's about more, than just Bruce, hopefully. I mean, I I think that's what they're trying to say. Yeah, uh, but, I mean, the, the movie, it, it sits in some weird places because, you know, I, I think you could have thrown in some scenes where you see how regular Gothamites are reacting to Bane. All of a sudden, there's this time jump and they're just, all of a sudden, they're part of the revolution, but you never see why or how they're reacting to that. Like, that's kind of a big deal. And I, I think 
you, you don't ever see how they were living before he came to town that would that would cause them to want to join this madman's revolution outside of Batman Begins. You see the narrows a little bit, right? Yeah. But you don't see that in this movie at all, and I don't think you see enough of it in the in Batman Begins. Well, I guess I just missed completely that like regular day to day Gothamite was the people were the people joining Bane. I know yeah. like a lot of them were criminals and like the people that had been locked away. Like they well, later about the on, thousands once, of people. once once the prison has people have been let out, then they join. But before that, it's I mean they talk about it like the orphan kid that that John Blake is talking to is yeah, talking but that about I just going, took as more and more sure, people going yeah like wayward orphans who have no place else to go which they do say you know they haven't received any funding for the places they're having to kick them out on the street they've got no place else to go uh so that seems pretty standard to me that like yeah where are you going to end up whoever offers you a place to be and a place to belong right but Um, but i just feel like there's not enough to show why they would be because because the the thing that i'm saying is that bane's whole like speech that he he gives, which of course we find out is nothing but bullshit anyway. This his old speech is he's trying to empower people to rise up above the oppression that they've been living under, but we never see that oppression. Yeah, it's never I mean, shown I, to the audience. It's, it's never related to. The I audience. guess I don't think that I ever really saw anybody rise up either. You know what I mean? Like I mean, Bane has except a whole the army. criminals that had been <laughs> abused by the Dent Act. But Bane had an army, but he had the League of Shadows. Which existed before and after, like I yeah, mean, but, it's, but they the the movie makes a point of his army being filled with the oppressed of Gotham. Yeah, maybe. I just I I feel like the homeless, sure, and like the kids who have nowhere else to be, then maybe. But that well, that, it's a lot of. I don't feel like you have of, to make much sense out of that. Yeah, because keep in mind this was also uh, coming around um, shortly after the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. They they so it was a lot they of shot the, during uh, like Christopher Nolan actually considered taking cameras down to Wall Street and shooting scenes during yeah. Occupy Wall Street. So and don't get me wrong, of, I it's think a lot of definitely 99, sh- so it's a lot of 99% versus 1%. Sure. Like yeah. we get we get the scenes of them going into the high dollar apartment buildings and you know destroying things and throwing people and throwing the 1% out on the street. So I mean so it's clearly about class yeah, I, I think I, I would say that the, yeah, there's definitely a statement to be made there, or like that's what he's trying to say, and one of the themes of the movie. I just don't feel like I ever saw him picking which side Gotham ended up on. Like Gotham just lo- it felt like Gotham was in that football stadium, and then they just kind of locked themselves away. They never did anything. Maybe the homeless people, sure, but that was an easier one to explain. Like it's like where do these homeless kids with their wayward teens with nowhere else to go? these people take them in it's the foot man that's what they do (laughs) well the the other well the the occupy wall street thing is another kind of weird gray area where this movie sits kind of politically because it acts like it's trying to make a statement but never really is clear on on the side it's taking it almost feels like on one hand the most clearly states that like nolan's kind of on the side of the occupiers being the bad guys. Cause that's what he creates in the film. Bane is those, the people working for Bane are the 1%. So they're the people who would be the protesters, the occupy wall street protesters and Nolan paints them as the bad guy. And as we, as we've kind of mentioned before, Nolan is fairly conservative. It seems in his political views, 
but then he also kind of makes the the Wall Street guys kind of seem like assholes too. You know, like he uh, when when you see them on the stock exchange, they're kind of dicks too. Yeah, I would say that Nolan's pretty conservative as a filmmaker. Like it, he probably has a conservative lean politically. Um, I think his big thing is the more uh, typical government, like big government is not a good idea thing. I like think I don't know Christopher Nolan's political affiliation, but I'm going to say he's a libertarian <laughs> based on why, what I see in his movies based on kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Um, because this movie does, it does kind of show that as well. And a lot of what the movie is showing is how these institutions ultimately fail the in- individual. Uh, which is a very kind of li- libertarian lean. Uh, sure. Even the, the well, League of you- Shadows even is a a group of fanatics. They're they're they, they end up being kind of useless. Gotham Police Department in this film is pretty corrupt, especially in Batman Begins. But by this one, they're basically in- totally ineffectual. I mean, look at the scene where they're chasing Bane, where they're where after after the 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 stock exchange takeover, they decide to go after Batman instead of after the criminal, you know? So the Gotham police department is kind of a bunch of bumbling doofuses, you well, that's know, that's throughout this movie. Like it all yeah. can be turned against you. I mean, there's a theme with even like, power rises is a failure. You yeah. Know, well, Batman, I mean, is a failure. Like he's got all this military might behind himself. And there's a, there's a price that comes with that. There's a, you can wield all of this might and all of this technology, but then what happens when it gets turned against you when the wrong person gets it? I mean, that's a theme Batman's always concerned about. I mean, even with the ultimate weapon in the movie, but also it's the Batmobiles that these people are using. And it's, it's all of the shit right. from allied technology or whatever that he's got to go up against at the end. Um, so it's say like you, you've got the power of an army here and he's always concerned about turning it over. It's like, then it ends up in the wrong hands anyway. Right. The, so that's, yeah, that's where I would, I would come to that conclusion. Well, and also John Blake's story arc is basically about a good, a good guy, a good cop. One of the, maybe one of the few good cops, uh, who's so frustrated by the system and by the failures and stupidity of the system that his only option is to leave the system behind and become Batman to work outside of the system on his own as an individual. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a hundred percent true. He, and of he, course there's also one of the films, it's w- one of the films, most like triumphant moments concerns an army of police officers in their blues beating up, a bu- <laughs> beating up a bunch of people in the streets, you know, uh, and it's played as a very heroic moment. Well, to be fair, they are murdering people and, and oh, blowing yeah. no, things yeah. up. They so, should, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, they're terrorists. Essentially, well, but what point. I'm saying is, the movie is very like confused. Not not confused. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not really about anything. That's the thing. Is like it. It. It acts. It has all these ideas, and it makes you think that it's it's making a um, it's making a statement. But in the end, when you really think about it, it doesn't really have a whole lot to say. Yeah, I just don't think it lands <laughs> on anything. It's the yeah. same problem that the Dark Knight. Uh, or the Dark Knight had like it doesn't make a decision. It's the same idea with like Batman having this, uh, you know, Homeland Security style reach or uh, what was it called the Patriot Act style yeah. reach. And the Dark Knight Rises, he uses it to get what he needs done. And he's like, you got to destroy it because it can't end up in the wrong hands. What's well, the same same shit he's dealing with here? Yeah, it's like I got all this stuff. 
and it shouldn't end up in the wrong hands. Well, it does end up in the wrong hands. And yes, it causes a huge problem. And then this big thing that he probably should have flooded the fucking room in the first place, I guess, but he kept it around and then it got turned against him. And so maybe, which is also kind of a weird anti-green energy statement that the movie's making that this, uh, what should be a clean energy device is turned into, you know, a weapon that can kill millions of people, which is also kind of a weird stance that the movies seem to be making. I, I'm not going to say that as much thought Christopher Nolan puts into things that he wasn't thinking that that seems like a reach to me, but uh, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe that's what he was thinking. Okay. But he also <laughs> seems like he just drops things in like, sorry, Todd, I'll, I'll let you go. But the fact that Blake is fucking named Robin at the end, that's just Stupid. like a dumb, I hate it. Like thing. I like, honestly it's just like, it. why, why? <laughs> yeah, like, why'd you I just throw that, that in there? It's like, he's not above just, just making something, you know, just happen for the, the sake of it happening. All right. So here here's we've gone through this whole series and you know i usually end up being the voice of uh the contrary uh here so i'm gonna put out a very bold statement you guys know that i'm a big batman fan from the word go um batman's so, a pedophile i already know what you're gonna say Todd. yeah yeah that's it that's it you beat me to the punch really now, close. Uh, he's way too close with robin yeah <laughs> No, but here's 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 my here's my big here's my big statement here. People need to stop watching Dark Knight. Here's why. Gary, you went uh either last episode or the first episode and saying this is full of great performances. Um and Justin on more than one occasion you have said that this is Bruce Wayne's story. Dark Knight is so focused on Joker that I think to get a real clear concise Batman story. You need Batman begins and you need dark Knight rises in Batman begins. He falls down the well. He's paralyzed by fear. His father comes to take him out with the question. Why do we fall? The prison that he has to rise up out of is very much the well that while he's down there, he's confronted with the image of his surrogate father Ross al Ghul. He is having to face his fear again. His journey in Batman Begins is from one of Bruce Wayne to Batman, from man to symbol. In Dark Knight Rises, he is the symbol. That's what's destroyed his life and eventually becomes the catalyst of his city on the brink. It's only him becoming Bruce again and making these decisions to give up being this symbol. And yes, it it is perpetuated on this lie, but that's because he's having to face himself. And when I say face himself, think about all the villains in the Batman universe. They've all been reflections of him. They've all been reflections of Batman to some degree in Bane, having Bane, have this particular origin of being taken in by Ra's al Ghul and then excommunicated from the League of Shadows. Batman's not fighting some other villain. He's fighting a surrogate brother, someone who he could have very easily stood shoulder to shoulder with in a battle of this nature. So he is having to regain the fear of death to overcome 
these insurmountable odds. And that's, that's what we're watching here. We were watching Bruce journey to becoming the symbol. And then we are watching him regain his humanity. And the way he does that is by setting that symbol aside and becoming the man that Alfred and ultimately his true father, Thomas Wayne really wanted him to be Thomas Wayne could have sat in a boardroom and raked in millions of dollars. He was a doctor. He got out there and he, he was his own man and he let other people handle the company. That's what he wanted for Bruce. He wanted Bruce. It was his dying wish to him. Don't be afraid. But at the same time, have that fear of death so that you make the most of your life. Right. Which is, which is what, what the Bruce old man in the well tells him to yeah. be able to get out. And all right, have, so, so what I'm picking up that. here, what I'm picking up here right now is that Todd thinks we could save the whole Nolan Batman trilogy if we remove the best movie of the Batman trilogy. <laughs> no, well, I, listen to what I'm saying. That I, no, this I movie is about if Bruce if, pulling himself out of the pit <laughs> by his listen, bootstraps. Gary, listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> if you want to watch great performances, by all means, watch Dark Knight. I do. There's times where I'll just be on a Dark Knight kick. But if you're looking for that cohesive, from beginning to end, Batman story... Batman begins. I I understand your sentiment, what you're saying, Todd, but I, I think that you're you're dismissing the Dark Knight as an integral part of that arc because so much of it gets rehashed. So much of it, so much of it gets rehashed in Dark Knight Rises. Then that's a flaw in the Dark Knight Rises. If it's rehashing the same information, that's I, I not, just that's, think it's, that's I, of no I, fault I to the Dark, Dark Knight. The Dark Knight came around first. So I think if it's the re- Dark Knight introduces like some of the. Th- I think what they're going for is it introduces some of the themes that they're going to tackle in Rises deeper, like the, you know, Patriot Act shit and that sort of thing, like about the amount of power that Batman wields. Well, and about the idea, like like Todd said, of Batman being a symbol, because he talks about being a symbol in Batman Begins. He truly becomes a symbol when he takes the fall for Harvey Dent at the end of the dark night. That's an integral part of Bruce Wayne's story. Yeah. Cause that's I, the point I, I where he's, like the he's willing works. to. Yeah. I, I think that you, I think you need the dark night in there. My to, big questions coming out of it. were like, when the fuck did he is, it's the only time, like these are the most streamlined Nolan movies, the most linear Nolan movies you can ask for. But was that scene of him in the cockpit of the bat, uh, flying that bomb out over the bay was that like in the past? When did he eject because when did he eject? There's no way no. he objected ejected like five seconds before and still lived. The thing had a six mile radius. Like <laughs> he's, he's still and toast. also maybe that was the animatronic. My other big question is another uh, and I hate saying these negative things about this because I really do like this movie. Uh, I like a lot about it, but it, it's. I would be remiss if I didn't point out the things that I think are are flaws. Talia Al Ghul's flip makes is not bad. earned. It is not earned. It feels it feels uh, out it of doesn't place. make any sense because she says that like she because her father was an asshole and she's like she was rejected essentially by her father and then she changes her mind when Batman let's Ra's al Ghul die all of a sudden she wants to fulfill his legacy that doesn't make there's nothing that justifies that character arc at all sure this feels like the one thing that's like the uh bigger idea 
part that you mentioned earlier that they just didn't have time to really flesh out or something right. because you could have almost taken all of the Talia Al Ghul stuff and given it more time to show the stuff you wanted out of a Bane character, but it's like they just had to round it out, like make it feel complete, like he's uh, it's connected all the way back to the beginning, uh, which I don't think you had to do considering this is more about Bruce and Batman and that sort of thing. And you still got the arc with or without the league of shadows being a part of this ending. Maybe it was, maybe it was a thing of like, she also had this affection for Bane because he protected her. So yeah, which is fine, but she has a lot of expel Rasogul, um, you know, excommunicating Bane. So she wants to, get revenge by surpassing her father's plan but there's nothing like, in the text of the film that supports yeah that. there's nothing so in you there you can't to, just fanfic your way into uh, yeah that's what i'm like it. so is yeah i'm having to grasp at well, straws fair, here she's to, a little girl so maybe what they meant see i don't know what it is with the pedophile thing this week, but <laughs> it's uh it's i've got a weird fixation on it gary i'm say. just saying like maybe Razal al rightfully was just like you like my daughter too much I'm also very curious how the guy who we see in the pit as Tom Hardy becomes the Bane that we see later. Like, like at what point did you, did he acquire like that persona? Uh, It's very strange. It's, it's, they don't feel like the same character hardly at all. Well, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Because he's just a dude who's been through a lot of shit. Apparently you assume down in the pit and he protects a little girl because he's worried about what's going to happen to her. And that all makes sense. But it's like, like, how did you become Bane? Yeah, why did that guy become a <laughs> Not that I need an origin terrorist. story. I, I don't need an origin story for Bane, but I need the two versions of that character to feel like they're the same person. And like, if I yeah. didn't know what Tom Hardy's face looked like, you know, what what about that tells me? Well, here's another big loophole. So we we got to assume that I think I've got all of this, all, all of us shitting on the movie now. Well, so. <laughs> <laughs> we got to assume that Bane was excommunicated before Bruce was there. Well, yeah. Or after, yeah, I guess. Or after, or well, in between. So then why are well, we just now finding out about Bane like eight years after the fact? Yeah. If yeah, he's well, been a revolutionary, like, you know, wreaking havoc all around the world, like, what did that just not pop up on Bruce's radar? I mean, <laughs> so, if it wasn't an immediate threat to Gotham, it may not have. Yeah. Because that, yeah, that's, so. he's, not a, he's not saving the world, he's saving Gotham. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is It is weird when you when you sit back and think about it. Just like, all right, so he joins the League of Shadows. Maybe that's where he got the mentality of the League of Shadows. Like, we've got to cleanse this whole place. But then it's like, well, what part of that got him excommunicated? Was it just because he was into the daughter? That's a little weird. So then the daughter leaves, but then she comes back to it and is like, and they're both just like, you know what, though? We still want to do what Roz had set in mind anyway, even though he didn't want us around. And so... Yeah. Which doesn't make um, any... Like, why would you care about his lofty goals if uh, you know mm. anyway so uh, we we need to wrap this up but i do want to mention a couple other things that i do like about the movie before we do because one i, I mentioned earlier that christopher nolan is really good at set pieces like we mentioned that one but the the opening with the the airplane heist like is absolutely just incredible beginning to end and then you've got one of my favorites is when bane takes over that financial district that whole sequence is just so well orchestrated uh, and well, just well constructed. It's really, really good. Cause it goes from him taking over the, over the financial district 
into the car chase where we get the return of Batman, the triumphant return of Batman. And I think it's just incredibly well done for all the issues I have with this film from a storytelling standpoint. I, it does not take away from the fact that Christopher Nolan is an outstanding filmmaker and like knows how to blow. And yeah, we've been blowing this film the whole time. Like this movie is a well-made film. Yeah. And I mean, the amount of trouble they go through for like practical yeah. uh, effects and just how good everything looks that, that scene, that battle at the end, real poor people, real cops, like so it's uh yeah it's perfect. i also love anne hathaway's selena kyle not i mean I, I, we already said how much i love her performance but i like the way that the character's handled in this movie yeah uh, i think it's the most humanized version of that of, of the catwoman character we've ever seen in a film and she like like many other other characters even in this film batman specifically she has a kind of a redemption arc like that's kind of her, her thing she's not just a villain, you know? And Catwoman never has been. That's one thing that's always been interesting about her is because she's sort of almost the other side of the coin from Batman. Uh, like she's a, she's a, yeah, she's a burglar, but she's not a bad guy per se. You know, she's just trying to get by and this is what she's had to turn to. Uh, but her inclusion in this film kind of helps to mirror some of the questions about Batman's own morality. Because what Batman is doing is technically speaking, criminal it is against the law to be a vigilante yeah you know so is, is she really that. better than him i think that's that's what thing that's always been very interesting about that character and i think Anne hathaway kills it honestly uh and we mentioned it before but i fucking love tom hardy in this movie uh i i don't i love his stupid voice i love that stupid voice <laughs> and one thing i remember from when this movie was being released so before this movie came out there was uh, before it was the latest uh, Mission Impossible movie. I think it was Ghost Protocol. The latest Mission Impossible movie they were showing in IMAX theater. So they were going to preview the opening six minutes of The Dark Knight Rises. And uh, uh, if you saw Ghost Protocol in IMAX, you were going to see that sequence, which was shot in IMAX. And I remember when it happened, there being all of this talk about Bane's voice. And people couldn't understand him. They didn't know yeah. what he was saying. Yeah. And it's ironic because Gary mentioned earlier how how Christopher Nolan doesn't like ADR, but they did. They replaced the dialogue in that scene, and the the way that Bane's voice sounds in this entire movie feels separated from the character. It like it, it, it almost has that. I kept thinking of Candyman. It's too far forward in the mix in the sound mix. It, yeah. it feels disassociated with everything else. But I actually found. I'm going to play this for you guys a comparison between that original IMAX version and the finished version of the film. And it's not just a remix. It's a different take of the dialogue. I don't know if they re-recorded it or used a different take, but it is definitely not. I mean, you can hear the inflection in some of his lines and it's not just a different mix of the same exact line. So I'm going to play this for you. Tell me what you think. Well, perhaps it won't be my summer who's to before throwing him out of a plane. Or perhaps he's wondering why someone would shoot a man before throwing out of a plane. It doesn't matter who we are. What happens is our plan. It doesn't matter who we are. What matters is our plan. No one cared who I was until I put on the mask. No one cared who I was till I put on the mask. So you can tell those are not like the exact same. Yeah, and it it really is it like we know what he's saying in those in the the IMAX version of that, 
but like we know what he's saying because we already know the lines. Like if you had heard that for the right. first time, and in fact, when I watched the movie this time, I watched it with subtitles on because I wanted to make sure I could understand Tom Hardy because even with the better sound mix, his accent makes it kind of hard to understand what he's saying sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's pretty insane. Like you could definitely tell a huge difference there. I will say on the uh, worst takes uh, or the early takes, he um, does sound more like uh, Bartley or whatever. The he does, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So anyway... What else do we have to say about this movie? We've been going on for a long time, but it's a three-hour movie, so there's a lot to talk about. Well, like yeah. we're we're an in-depth podcast. People are going to walk out of these podcasts not ne needing to know another goddamn thing about Batman, <laughs> The Dark Knight Rises. They're going to either by force or just the, you know they'll just be like, I don't want to hear another thing about the dark Knight rises. That's it. That's how I treat my whole week leading into these. Now it's just <laughs> like, I'm going to know everything it I all. can and I'm going to fucking hate this by the end of it. Uh, I also would, I don't want to end this without saying how much I like Michael Caine in this movie as well. Oh, the moment at the grave site. I felt you. Oh my God. It's heartbreaking. <laughs> and of course in the movie, like it's like two minutes later proves that, everything is fine but yeah. but so, that's I mean, batman living long enough to really see himself become the villain you make alfred cry you piece of shit you son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> uh do you guys have anything else to add before we wrap it up no i love it man it's i'm a i'm a batman fan it's any version of batman is do you like batman great. and robin you know what i, I get i get it so I can endure it if I hey, decide I, to I sit like Batman and watch and Robin. it. I don't think it's good, but I enjoy <laughs> watching it. Good. Yeah. I enjoy watching it. It's, and it's in incredibly entertaining. <laughs> I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed Adam West stuff, all the animated stuff. And that's why, you know, uh, some of my friends who were, you know, know I'm a big Batman fan are like, Oh, how do you feel about, you know, Twilight boy being Batman? And I'm like, honestly, bring First it on. of all, if they're still calling him Twilight boy after, <laughs> After all the stuff he's done in between, they they need some he's right. more than education himself. Sure. Yes. Well, so that, if they watch the trailer, that is no longer a question because he's right. badass in that yeah. trailer. Yeah, and all I'm excited that to say, I'm it. I'm down. If it's Batman, bring it on. Let's yeah, let's have a big day with it. Yeah, have I don't big day. man. This this movie we nitpicked it there on. at the end, but it's 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 a it's still a really it's I mean, not it's a, a perfect film. Movie. It's not as tight as the previous films, but it's still pretty damn it's still got a lot going for it i mean yeah, I just think. for the cinematography alone like for the sheer like scope fantastic of it if honestly. this if this is the weakest entry consider you're doing pretty good that it's that it's still better than most this is no godfather there. three yeah right right <laughs> all right guys well let's talk about what we're doing next week because it is going to be december yeah, it's beginning to look a lot and like Christmas. I've been I've been hesitant to do a, a Christmas series because <laughs> fucking Christmas movies are pretty bad most of the time, honestly. Yeah. And we've we've talked on our previous show about some kind of fun, what we call incidental Christmas movies and things like that. But we're gonna do a a series that I think will be pretty fun that I think fans of our show will dig, and it's going to be called Black Christmas. And these yeah. are four films. We'll talk about through the month of December, set at Christmas, and are all are written 
by Mr. Shane Black. Yeah. Who man loves Christmas. Yeah. So not the initial Black Christmas that you might have been thinking of. No, you thought it was gonna be that horror movie. We think we've talked about that before too. You yeah, back did. on the old I show haven't. we did. That was yeah. Bob Clark. And uh, about he also remakes. did Porky's, which I rewatched the other day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he also did a Christmas story. Yeah, so good for that guy. So maybe yeah. we'll have a Bob Clark. Well, that doesn't really make sense. I guess Black Christmas, Porky's is not a Christmas movie, but I would love to no, talk about it. It drops the <laughs> N-bomb, the F-bomb. It uh, is there's, problematic. So There are so many problematic scenes in it, <laughs> and it's it's a riot. <laughs> <laughs> well, next week, we're starting our Black Christmas series with kind of the, the movie that put Shane Black on the map, and that is the original Lethal Weapon starring Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. Uh, it's going to be fun. I'm excited to talk about it. So speaking I'm of problematic, yeah, Mel Gibson, <laughs> <laughs> of, who has a Christmas movie coming out. Oh boy, he's problematic. Oh, fat, and have you not also, seen the trailer for this, Todd, Fat Man. What? Fat Man. That's the name no. of the. Oh my God! I'm sending you the trailer. I'm really. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It'll be pretty insane. <laughs> it looks fun. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Well, you guys All got right. anything else to add? Let's get out of here. Let's let yeah. these people go on with the rest of their day. All right. Well, we'll thanks see you guys everybody next who week for Lethal Weapon. Uh, head to cinemashock.net to find out where you can stream it online. And, uh, you know, rate, review, send this episode to your friends, all your friends who are into Batman or your friends who are maybe into action movies like we're going to start talking about next week. So we're yeah. we're all over the map genre-wise. I know you guys thought we were just going to be a horror movie podcast after we did 10 weeks of George Romero, but we uh, <laughs> we're going to be all over the place genre-wise. Yeah, we appreciate you guys listening and the positive feedback we've gotten. It's been a blast. And uh, stick with us because we have reasons we're doing all these series, and I think you'll find them fun. And uh, we're going to get even weirder after Christmas, probably. So, definitely, you know, yes, yes, and, definitely. And re- reach out to each of us online, reach out to the show, but we are all very available online to uh, discuss nerdy things, film yeah. and otherwise. Give yeah. Todd a reach around. <laughs> Well, speaking of which, where can you guys be found on the internet if people want to reach around to you? <laughs> okay, if we're going with the reach around. Uh, I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Limited edition COVID comedy t-shirts are available now. I am at This Is Gary Horde on everything. No t-shirts. I am at Justin <laughs> underscore Bishop. I own lots of t-shirts. Actually, you can click on my well, link and get times. a Guds Out Gary shirt. Which, yeah, you uh, do have a t-shirt, yeah, Gary. Yeah, so, I'm the only one here without a t-shirt. <laughs> so that's true. So thank Somebody you. designed me a t-shirt. <laughs> Jack Odinson spits Fortnite with his actual Guds. Where yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he looks better in a sleeveless than you do, it, Gary. It's, it's, it's true, yes. <laughs> Nobody well, until next who week, he was until he put on the mask. Oh, oh, and follow us at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook. Until next week, may the wings of liberty never lose a wait. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. <laughs> Be excellent to each other. Jonah has the keys. Jonah, Jonah yeah. Nolan, instead Jonah of, Nolan. Instead has of keys? Johnny, I'd said. Jonah. Oh, that you Jonah. did say Jonah. I thought I was misunderstanding. Okay, oh, that's good. Jonah. I like what you, I like that. That's called a callback. Yeah, that's a bit of a callback. All right. Professional comedian available for uh, parties, bar mitzvahs, corporate events. We'll see. Ha <laughs> ha